This is a 1984 Flyer Die podcast. Special, special episode of the 1984 Fly Dot Podcast. It's crazy. Uh, so this week I wrapped up my 10th episode, posted it, and I was like, yeah, this is, it feels good. I'm sitting here with my notebook on my table, trying to figure out what things to write for next year. But then I get a phone call from a friend from the City of Angels, a formerly uh, Philadelphia resident, part of me, Renfield resident. Uh, brother is a Central High graduate. Boom. Uh, oh, ENS. Oh, ENS. Yes. Where is Central High from? I don't know. All right, so ENS. It makes sense. We got a lot. Of, I have a lot of friends that went to Central. Yeah, because I'm thinking about like King and yeah. I feel like I'm thinking everybody in the same box. No, so my ENS, man, yes. ENS. Norris. ENS is engineering and sciences for y'all who don't know. I stepped across those crack valves to get to get to school. Yes. For those who want to know who is the voice you just heard, that's not my own. It's my main man, Ron. Greetings. Is that was that, that was my cue? Oh, word. yeah. Oh, yeah. Ron, aka RNC. RNC, not to be confused with the Republican National Convention. Oh, please don't. Yes. It's my man, Rob. I hate Rob's my, brother. I hate my name every four years during the summer. <laughs> Ronald Neal Clark. Translates to Republican National Convention, and yes, every four years for a week in the summer, I hate my name, hate my initials. I would too. But yeah, yo, yo, RNC snaps. Yes, yo, RNC snaps is his name. That Instagram handle. On Instagram, and one thing I can say about this brother is that he's very well versed in many things related to the culture. Try. Like this, the first guy I met who I thought was like. There in that level was my homie Scheme Richards. Scheme is the is the oracle, man. Yeah. He truly is. Everything. And I met Ron. I said, what's this, what's this Ron cat about? Because I met, I met Ron. And we had a, it was a, one of those nights we were at the Barcade. It was me, you, King, and uh, yeah. Scheme. And what, Tim Monster was there. Was Tim there? I think Tim was there. Because it was another time. It was like, it was crazy. It was me, Taib, King, and I think... Scheme was there. I think RJD2 came out one night. It was a crazy... I had a couple of crazy nights at the Barcade. Yep. We did, we did it twice. Yes. Yeah. First time I didn't know you. Second time, I'm like, yeah, it's Ron. It was like the Avengers with nerds. Yep. Yep. Playing that game. What game was it called? Uh, Was it not Maelstrom? What's the name of that game? Maelstrom. He said Maelstrom, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. That was a 90s Mac game. Yeah, wow, it was Mac. Was it Asteroids knockoff? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, wasn't that? What was the game? Oh my goodness! I remember it had like neon lines in it. Yeah, you were on a spaceship. Games with an M. 
Ah, uh, you lost me. The Sinistar, there's, there's a game. game was it Gattaca? No, it wasn't Gattaca. It was something like, something close to that. And I was trying to figure out what the hell that was, but it wasn't Gattaca. Mm. All right. Well, I could spend an entire hour trying to figure out what game that was. but Yeah. That's a whole nerd, nerd tangent right there. Yeah, super nerd tangent. And you only got, what, two hours on this recorder? so. Y- yeah. <laughs> Y'all have come close to burning out of... Uh, Thanks for having me, by the way. No doubt about it. Shout out to Water Ice for hosting you and giving you an outlet. Thank you very much, brother. You're, you're an oracle in your own right, it turns out. Thank you very much. We may not see eye to eye on a lot of things, but, you know. Speaking of oracle... Yes. It's also the name of a diss song created by Mason Bethel. Oh, Lord. Towards Cameron. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> One. Oh, my gosh. No. <laughs> yes. But here's the funny part about today is that the homie came through. You know, he offered, uh, oh, yeah. brought some uh, libations here of the alcoholic, uh, you know, yeah. persuasion. Yeah. And not only did he bring alcohol, you know, and himself, of course, he also brought along cue cards. Yes, I got three by five cards, man. Yeah, and I'm afraid to know what's on these cards, but information. Myth busting. Myth busting. Oh, here we There's go. A few things I jotted down. See, I meant to translate these to the transfer these to the uh, legal pad, but um, yeah, dang, I wrote a lot of stuff down. I was mad that day. Apparently, at Starbucks on La Brea. I wasn't mad. You don't really get mad in L.A. You just get, you know. Let's get these little manic uh, tangents. And you start writing stuff down. Very creative, yeah. very creative atmosphere out there. Boom. So I think so, yeah, man. we'll call this episode Myth Busting. We'll call it Myth Busting. I was going to call it uh, 2018 Idiot Rap Argument. I mean, it's just your show. I don't want to hijack your show, but yeah, I was just uh, spitballing a few topics. So yeah, Idiot, it was, it's, it's not poetic. It doesn't flow at all, but Idiot Rap Argument Ender. But yeah, hip hop myth busting, uh, what have you? It's uh, good. It's a good idea. A few other ideas came up, but yeah, we're just gonna leave it at that. Uh, yeah, okay. because we spent. You know, I always say when you get to the gates of heaven, you see was it Saint Peter? Is that the? Yeah, Saint Peter. Yes. Saint Peter's at the gates of heaven. He gives you a receipt of all the time you're wasting your life doing this. Like you know, like you play Xbox now. They tell you how much time you actually spent playing video games this year. Yeah, and I like spent like something like ten hours. That's a week and three days playing video games. It's a bizarre thing. Jesus. So at the end of your life, you get there and you you know you find out all the you know the terrible things that almost happened to you, the great things that you almost missed out on. And he gives you a readout, and um, you find out how much time you wasted on your top five. Arguing about your top five rappers, top ten albums of all time. Because everybody gets it wrong. All those albums are somebody else's top ten albums. Agreed. People just kind of just plug into the, the, the culture. Mm-hmm. As, as the uh, the go-to phrase now. Right. So, yeah. 1984, Fly or Die, 2018, Idiot Rap Argument Ending. Let's do it. Myth busting. And it's perfect Anybody for the... Anybody die yet? Rap-wise? No, on Fly or Die. Everybody's flown, right? Nobody's died. Yeah, nobody, yeah, nobody's died yet. Nobody's okay, died yet. Change, that might change tonight. Oh shit, let's go. Yo, man, let's go go into it. Yes, because we've been. I don't know, man. You were on this mace thing, and it was like, wow. Yeah. So let me <laughs> let me get into the whole mace thing, right? Yeah. So for me, mind you, I grew up 
1984. I wanted to start there. Right. So a lot of what I was introduced to growing mm-hmm. up right. was the Chinese suit era. Right. But mind you, don't get me wrong, I grew up on Kid and Play and like Rock Kim, Public Enemy. Sure. I had all these different people who we were all there. Have, all have really long memories and we, you know. Right. But then once you get to a certain age where it's like what's popular right. and amongst all your buddies. Right. Like Puff Daddy was that guy. Well, mainly Biggie, but then once Biggie passed, mm-hmm. it was Puffy Mania. That but, was the tipping point. It was. A whole lot building up to that, but now it was a 97, right? Yeah. Uh, the Puff Daddy and the family, all or nothing. What's the name? No, <laughs> no Way Out. No, no Way Out, yeah. No Way Out, Kevin. That was the tipping point. Right. That's when I just saw the whole, this, this, you know, and people talk about this old head young boy, young bull, I'm sorry, Philly, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> argument like, you know, this is a brand new thing. And we talked about you started in 1980. You were born in 84? Right. 1984, I bought my first rap single, uh, Hanging Out, the B-side, uh, Roxanne, Roxanne by ETLO. That's when my whole hip-hop experience started. Can't go and right never now. Been, I, you know, I DJed for a few years, but mostly my whole experience of hip-hop has been at the consumer, which nobody talks about. Right. We talk about all the elements and the four elements and all types of hip hop and rapping and DJ. It all is about me. Yeah. I'm the hip hop consumer. Right. And a lot of hip hop that I've consumed, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm not going to be that cat that, you know, I was there. Because I wasn't. You know, I was born in 74. I was 10 years old when I first got my first rap album. So I missed a lot. Mm-hmm. I missed all the parties at the win. I missed, uh, you know, after midnight. So everything, I was a consumer. I bought the records. Didn't know anything about DJing. Singles. I always bought singles at Sound the Market. Didn't know they were for DJs. I just thought it was just a record. It's the best way to get the record. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to Lady B. There's a whole lot more underground history to hip-hop than Lady B, but that was my conduit to the culture. Right. To hip-hop. So... Um, I consider myself an early adapter. Um, my tastes are just weird. My whole approach to what I like and dislike in hip hop has nothing to do with quality or what's wag or what's great. Hip hop should never be boring to me. Mm-hmm. Bad hip hop is boring hip hop. Right. So there's a lot of common that I hate. There's a lot of trap that I hate because it just bores me. It's not about you know the quality of the lyrics or whatever. It's just like. And everybody has, you know, nobody's had a really solid, um, you know, catalog, really. You know what I mean? People have, you know, peaks and, you know, some catalogs are better than ever. Some careers have been better than others. Um, But I just started in 84 Mm -hmm. and I hated my first rap record in 86, 87. I have a 30 year (laughs) haters approach to hip hop. You know, it's like, you know, it's not like I just don't like new music. Right. I've been hating certain rap records for 30 years. First rap record I absolutely hated was J.J. Fad, Supersonic. It was Dr. J for, Dr. Dre considered the, you know, the greatest hip hop mm-hmm. in the culture. You know, that's the go-to, you know, that's right. the cliche. It's almost cliche. There's a lot of truth to that. It's not necessarily everybody's opinion, but 
you know, you do your top 10, everybody has the same top 10 records, and you say you're the best hip-hop producer of all time, so everybody's pretty much going to say Dr. Dre. If you do hip-hop, Family Feud, it's going to be your number one answer. Right. Right. It's like the most popular answer. Not necessarily the best answer, but it's the most popular answer. It's everybody's go-to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 1980, I forget, it was 87, I guess, 86, 87, um, J.J. Fed, and it was a West Coast rap album, and it was very 808 and upbeat record. And at that time, the uh, Bomb Squad had, you know, Bomb Squad and Marley Mall were emerging as the, you know, as the hip-hop producers of the moment, you know what I mean? And um, this weird thing about Dr. Dre, before NWA, he was, his popularity in Philadelphia was amazing on the radio. And I was just speaking in terms of Tower 99. That was, the, you know, it was like a lot more underground stuff going on. But, you know, hip-hop wasn't everywhere. So um, you had Lady B, and you had Power 99. They had Power 9 at 9 countdown was the main thing. If you're a black youth in Philadelphia in the 80s, um, hopefully somebody out there has like a list of every Power 9 at 9 countdown list from the 80s because that was the the touchstone. That was the touchstone of that whole era. If you could find those lists, that's what... That was the main, I don't know, the Rosetta Stone. That was what you find if you want to know about black youth culture in the 80s. You find those that nine list of nine songs that were compiled every night. And um, before NWA, even before NWA, NWA really wasn't that popular in Philly. I mean, it's hard to say, like, you know, this that was in high school, and, you know, there were, you know, tastes had kind of emerged. It was still the East Coast and West Coast thing was just emerging. Um, with uh, the Niggas for Life album and Tim Dog, and that was like where that whole thing just kind of like started. Song by Tim Dog, Fuck Compton. Yes, Fuck Compton. Tim Dog, um, out of the Ultra Magnetic MCs camp, uh, produced this album, and you know, NWA had blown up with Straight Out Compton, of course, and then it came out with his sophomore album, um, Niggas for Life, and they had 100 Miles and Running was the bridge. Because EPs had um, had emerged as well. But yeah, before all of that, Worldcraft's Wrecking Crew turned out the light. When that hit the Power 99 count, that was like number one for like months, it seemed. Really? Yes. It was an, an incredibly huge record. Because it's essentially an R&B record, you know what I mean? Yeah, cause I've heard about it. It just amazes me that that song traversed... From the West over to oh, the East Coast. Because Philly, Philly is at its heart R&B city. You know, Philly International, your WDAS is right there. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as music, you know, it was, it was, and it was turned out to be hip-hop's second city for a while, for a minute there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's an R&B, and Turn Out the Light is essentially it's an R&B song. I think Michelle A and the World Crest Wrecking Crew, you know, it was like... It was a update of uh, "Float On" by the uh, the Floaters. I forget. I, th- I think that's the artist from the seventies. And you had the Five Brothers, and they came out and they each did the rap seventies rap, you know, to the the girl. And you know, my name is whatever. This is my zodiac sign. This is what I do tonight. <laughs> So, yeah, Turn Out the Light was a song produced by the Wrecking Crew. And, you know, we all know um, 
when you do the history of hip hop and the you know things that people are embarrassed by, you always have Jay Z behind the jazz as his sidekick, and you always have um, Dr. Dre in the sequin suit. So that was that era. Yeah, it came. It was it was amazing. I think in my mind, as far as Philly's concerned, world class wrecking crew, and then JJ Fad, which you know is part of history, completely left out of the movie, straight out of Compton. Um, just for the sake of storytelling, you know what I mean? But that I think J.J. Fad went gold, possibly platinum, before, you know, in the NWA recording, and that's, you know, where Ruthless uh, got most of his uh, war chest. Um, so, yeah, so it was those, those two records. It might have been a third record um, that Dre produced, but, you know, one was essentially an R&B record, and one was kind of like a... Th- I don't know, it was like... JJ Fad Supersonic just seemed it was just whack to me. And a lot of people agreed. So whack record, it was kinda like a step backwards, you know. You get a lot more sample based production. Mm-hmm. And where the Bomb Squad and Marley Mall were concerned it was very complex, multi tracks and all this stuff. And JJ Fad, it was just a whack you know, it was wacky and it was light with it. And I, I kinda appreciate it now. But back then it's like oh God, this is such a step back to the electro era mm-hmm. of hip hop, which you know was like eighty five, eighty four, eighty five through eighty seven, when you know hip hop was going through its entire this uh, growing pains. Egyptian Lover was on it during that era. Yeah, Egyptian yeah. Lover, um, Johnson Crew, uh, you know Africa Bambada and Soul Sonic Force and so forth. And you know, thing to remember about hip hop was that it wasn't everywhere and you know it just seems that for me the more popular it gets and that's for any culture more popular it gets the more bottom line you get to it uh the the more common denominator you find in it Mm -hmm. found in it you know it's not as great the more popular it gets the worse it gets as far as i'm concerned and i'm a late adapter you know it's like four years of five years of rap records before that UTFO album I bought. Mm-hmm. You understand? And um, just kind of like I consider myself an early adapter and then it was like that's only recorded hip-hop. That was five years before that. 1979 from 1973 with the original party um, that Coke LaRock and uh, Cool Herc threw. There's uh, about seven, six, seven years of entire culture that exists only in uh, faded tapes and uh, party flyers, you know what I mean? All marvelously uh, curated up at uh, was it Stanford University? Who has the uh, Rich Medina is going to kill me for this because he's uh, I think he's, it might be Stanford, isn't that? That's where Bimbala has his record collection at. Mm, I'm thinking Stanford, Stanford's in California. Um, Harvard, gosh, no. he's going to kill me. <laughs> That's what the guys. You look it up. We do live Googling on uh, yeah, we do live Googling now. Fly or die. Yeah, because you got to get the information correct. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, you got to get it right. Heck, I meant to have the iPad. Uh, Was it Cornell? Cornell. Cornell University has the archive. Didn't have to Google that. Popped in my head there right there on the spot. Boom. Yeah, Cornell, yeah. Cornell Stanford. You know, not talking about academia. We're talking about rap music. No doubt. It's your top five uh, Ivy League colleges, Mike. My top five? Yeah. Off the top of your head. <sighs> Yale. Mm-hmm. Harvard, mm-hmm. UPenn. Mm. I gotta go with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, other two, 
Monmouth? No, that's not one. I don't wow. know. I was going to name three out there. Wow, man. Stanford? You it out after your Rock M, man. Wow, that's crazy. Dude, I... Crap. Villanova isn't, isn't one. It's, it's not it a, should be, man. It should Villanova be. Villanova is the best school in the area as far as... I didn't go. My aunt went, so... Mm-hmm. I just love the main line so much. I'm proud of you, man. Thank you, bro. Villanova, Mike Bayon, ladies and gentlemen, Villanova Alamada. Yeah. I almost wore my Kerry Kittles jersey tonight, man. Should have done it. Dude. It's cold out. It is. It's brick outside. Hella brick. Okay, that's a tangent. So where were we? And by the way, the game I was thinking of from earlier. Yeah. It's Tempest. Oh. Of course, yeah. That's what that yes that was. Yeah. Shout out to Ursula Rucker. She's a master, uh, miss, um, master attachment. Uh, I Tempest. heard that. Yeah, yeah. I heard she was vicious at the game. She's the truth. Poetry and Tempest and 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 mothering. She's an incredible human being. Yes, she is. Um, yeah. So, where were we? Oh, Talking about haters. His. Uh, that's that would be a good alternate topic tonight. A haters history of hip hop. But go ahead. Look, because uh, before we get into, it was uh, mentioning like the Coakley Rock and that's time span. We just being sure. on faded pictures, or faded tapes, and uh, and flyers. Yep. I consider myself as a hater, mm-hmm. but I'm a hater with good reason. Mm-hmm. Because for me, where I come from and things I've experienced in life, mm-hmm. especially in terms of the culture of music, it's like I know what's good, I know what's not good. Right. And. It's that people... Of course, everything's objective, but you know. Come yeah, on. Yeah, you know. You know, so now things are weird for me now because the bar's been lowered so, you know, so, so, damn, down, so damn far that people are thinking that... Well, ain't no bar. It's not a bar anymore? Russell sold the bar in uh, in ninety in 2000. Oh, he sold Def Jam. Yeah, you know, he just sold the bar. Yeah, he sold, yeah. So bar was sold. We sold out, man. Damn. That's why you know rap, rap is the most popular genre now. I thought it was years ago that it kind of crossed over and beat out rock and country, but apparently this year, according to Billboard, yeah. But um, yeah. Jesus, never thought of it like that. That yeah. that's when the bar got sold, when Def Jam got sold off like that. Yeah, I, I don't blame Russell, but I kind of blame Russell. I might be wrong. I mean, it's a collective thing. I mean, it's, it's people come, and everything happened honestly, you know. Mm-hmm. There wasn't an Illuminati cabal, and there was no meeting, and forget that meme that you see on online about the meeting, and we're going to poison, and this whole line of thought that everything is, you know, planned and thought out, and, you know, we're being programmed. No, think people come by things naturally, you know. Yeah. We all want to skew toward hedonism. We all want to talk about and invest in things that make us feel good over than, you know, more in the intellectual pursuits. Right. It's just part of being a human being, part of being an American. So I don't really blame anybody, mm-hmm. but, you know, I just don't invest in it anymore. Man. I don't invest in trap and uh, some of it. Some of it is good. I like trap, but I think people, is just a money grab, a lot of it. Because there are in some incredible trap albums coming out mm-hmm. for 10 seconds. Beautiful ambient loops worthy of like four AD records in the 80s. Beautiful ambient loops worthy of the Cocteau Twins or My Bloody Valentine or any of those alternative groups. Then the 808 comes in mm-hmm. and just kills it for me. Man. 
that's the thing about I love about streaming is that you just have access to everything. You know what I mean? You can be a hater or you can be a critic. And I hate the I really hate the term haters because well we'll get to that with Diddy in '97, the tipping point. Oh yeah. Do you want to do a timeline or we just want to skip skip around to Doctor Who? It's Doctor Who it. Because mm-hmm. one thing you mentioned about '97, right? Right. In terms of why I feel like the era was special for me is because I don't know it was just the energy and the vibe that I got from like. Diddy Records and Mace Records, because it wasn't. It felt like it was easy to, to easy to get into, mm-hmm. versus like me in '93 trying to get into Wu Tang back then. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a Wu Tang like head until like I got older, where I can understand. Right, but you got in '93 when you have Midnight Marauders coming out mm-hmm. and you got Thirty Six Chambers coming out. Uh-huh. I'm going towards like Midnight Marauders because it was easier for me to understand. Right, you know what I'm saying, and it right. was like, in a way, like less threatening. Because mm-hmm. if you like eight, eight, nine years old, you know, you come up how I came up. Mm-hmm. I can only go towards tribe. Right, I couldn't, I couldn't do woo. Because I mean, I, I didn't understand any of that street shit like that. Right, same when Biggie's album came out uh, a year later. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, cool, like these guys are dope, but. Mm-hmm. They're solely dope because of what I heard on the radio. Right. It took me once I got older. So we got programmed. Well, yeah. Yeah. In that, I, in that, that respect, we do get programmed. Yeah. Every, every, um, I read a lot, write a lot of music books. And one common theme I found in every music book I found is that nothing, you know, we get this idea. There's a myth that, you know, just somebody has a dollar and a dream and they, record this demo and they shop it to a record, you know, shop it to a radio station, radio station plays it, word of mouth spreads around, people love it, yada, yada, and they become a superstar. And it's, the truth is, is a whole industry behind you getting to hear that record. There's just like, there's like back in the days, there were legions of what they call record people. And they would work a record for a region of the company and make sure that the record got played and, you know, sh- ship the pom- promos out. And in the days of, you know, payola, payola meaning the uh, it's a corrupt system where record companies would pay, pay DJs cash. Mm-hmm. They would send you, you know, a 12-inch, a white label record with, you know, $500 tucked in the cover. And you play this record, you know, hourly. You play this record, you know, get this record into the rotation. If you're a program director, highly illegal, FA, FCC, you know, disapproves of it. Um, father rock and roll was ruined because of it. The Philly father rock and roll, Dick Clark, um, he kind of uh, presented himself as a boy scout about it, though he and he too took advantage of the system. Yeah, look up Al- Alan Freed, man. Now, did didn't that same thing happen for one of New York's pioneering DJs, Frankie Crocker? Frankie Crocker, yes, Frankie Crocker, indeed, was also involved in payola. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting cat, Frankie Crocker, man. He came he was... to like Steel 54 on a white horse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. These are like all kind of Frankie Crocker uh, stories. Um, but yeah, so my whole thing about rap, about hip hop, is just it's the most exploited genre of music as far as I'm concerned. Most exploited culture and just the levels of exploitation will never 
fully unwrap and understand it. I agree. This is like so much of it, and it's never been like young versus old, never been old head versus young ball, never been pop versus hip hop. It's always been music lovers and people that wear hip hop as drag. Right. And I think it's always been my impression that people's love of hip hop is drag first before love of music. Like music is second. Just not even a distant second. It's just a second, second aspect that people appreciate most about hip hop. First of all, it's how down it makes you look. The street cred, I think. Everybody just picks up on it. Everybody can name check Pac and Biggie. You can get the T-shirt at Target. You can get the T-shirt at Urban Outfitters. That's that's the way in. And to me, that's that's crazy. You mentioned Urban Outfitters because mm-hmm. there's been many times I go inside the store, <clears throat> getting hats and jackets or whatever, and I see the the rap T-shirts, mm-hmm. and I'll see. So you know how there's a there were certain T-shirts that were very uh, popular at uh and Compton Swap Meets. Yeah. In terms of how the certain designs were. Right. Well, they've been absconded now, been used and sold for like triple the price probably in Urban Outfitters. Oh, yeah. I've seen Absolutely. like the Tupac ones and like a Selena one mm-hmm. and all the different different things. But I'm like, listen, when these artists were popular, you didn't have these shirts. Right. It took you until 2012, 2013, 2014 to have these shirts. And it's like you're kind of you're jacking the image mm-hmm. now because of the certain – Nostalgia that that the youth culture is experiencing now, right? But the nostalgia isn't, and not to be judgmental, but the nostalgia is, is bullshit, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because you're just buying into the photos, the looks of these artists rather than actually understanding the music. Right? It's like kind of like me going right. to a store and going to buy a Nirvana shirt, mm-hmm. and not knowing a damn song they've made. Alternative uh, drag, grunge drag. Yep. Hot topic. It's punk drag. It's in the mall. 30 years ago, you had to drive, or you had to borrow your dad's car, or you had to get your parents to drive you to South Street, to Zipperhead, to dress like that. And just like everything, it's a huge thing that happened in the 90s, man. Everybody was, they built this cultural ghetto around a lot of people. They built a punk ghetto about around the suburban kids that wanted to do that. And um, I don't know. It's a weird thing. I I grew up in America. I didn't grow up in Black America. You know what I mean? It's not like I grew up in a black neighborhood. I have black neighbors, but culturally, I grew up in America. It's not like we watch Good Times and the Jeffersons and what's happening. And you know, that's that's ninety minutes out of the week. You know what I mean? <laughs> we watch Family Ties, West of Brady Bunch. We got the whole time. Mm-hmm. But in the nineties. Yeah, these, you know, race, we stopped being a race, became a demographic. Then the infrastructure of television chains, infrastructure of radio chains. So you have cable, you have basic cable, you have more channels. You have three uh, three channels and three majors and the three local UHF channels and the one, you know, PBS channel, you had 150, 200 channels. So you had a black channel. Mm Mm-hmm. And you became a demographic. And so they built programming for you. And then, you know, you could watch BET all day if you wanted to. I flipped around, watched Nick at Night, I watched MTV, I watched A&E. Mm-hmm. 
but um, you know, just kind of built this demo. We were built into this demographic ghetto in the '90s, and really narrowed, you know, our 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 influence. I think, and that's what what was so energizing about '80s and '90s, a lot of '80s and '90s hip hop, especially from New York artists, because New York is you know the cultural capital of the West. It's an American city, but it's not an American city. You know, it's it's technically an American city, but it's its own island off, you know, and there's nothing like it anywhere else in the rest of the country. So these kids in, you know, New York, and you're just open to so many things, open to so many different types of music. So Bambada and Grandmaster Flash all were open to whatever music came to downstairs records whatever record stores they went to in new york city salsa uh euro you know craft work records um disco you know everything came through new york so you had access to everything you know what i mean and it wasn't like they knew what a rap record was you know rapper's delight wasn't a rap record rapper's delight wasn't the first record record it was a novelty disco record at the time you know what i mean Possibly the biggest selling 12-inch in the history of records. We did, we'll never know because Sugar Hill Gang, uh, Sugar Hill Records was uh, corrupt. <laughs> they printed like a, uh, a lot of copies off the books. Mm-hmm. And um, that record went global. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it was like the first, it was a, at the time, it was just another disco record. And disco was huge, even after... The um, you know, disco sucks movement in Chicago and the but damn, the, the White Sox game and all that. See, that was, I thought it was fucking whack. It was corny because I watched a documentary on mm-hmm. disco, and people said that a lot of it came from either racism and homophobia. Like they were saying that, like it because of what it attracted. Right. And you saw who was there, you know, in that White Sox game. Mm-hmm. All the faces, like we want rock yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Just seeing how all that went down, but disco to me, it wasn't a trash genre mm-hmm. of music. Cause you had, you know, besides the Donna Summer, you had uh, let me think of the, the Italian uh, musician, the producer who was uh, Giorgio Morello. Yes, mm-hmm. and all the work that he's done. I'm like, if not for disco, you would not have had some of the advances you had in R and B, even in rap in the '80s. Right. You know, so it's always in- interesting to me, like. How discos seem to go down a fiery uh, rabbit hole. Well, that's another interesting thing because I always look at the context of it, and in contrast to all those white faces at Comiskey Park, I think it was Comiskey Park in, in uh, Chicago at that White Sox game. We were talking about the bringing disco. There was a, a event, you know, to bring people to ballparks in the seventies. Had these wild remote promo nights. So one promo night was bring disco records to uh, the white to the yeah Chicago White Sox game, and we're gonna blow them up uh, at the seventh inning stretch or after the game or something. So everybody bought you know there was a pile of hundreds of records in the middle of the park. They blew up the records um, with like dynamite or something. Then everybody was loaded and it caused a caused a small riot at the park and they tore up the park basically. So, in contrast to those white faces, mostly, you know, white faces at Comiskey Park that night, you have George Clinton, who likened disco music to making love with the same stroke. 
for years. And he did have a point. That, you know, that that two, one, two beat is four, four, it's a four on four beat, but it's, you know, everything was, you know, it was just a lot of the same stuff was coming out. He said it was just disco and it was bad disco. And it's weird, like the best disco came at the end of it with Nile Rodgers and Sheik, the Sheik uh, movement, as far as I'm concerned, and this Diana Ross. Um, records and the sister sledge and he's just still is like probably the most influential producer uh in the disco era and through the 80s you know he 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 was architect of the 80s as well which nobody really points out madonna's albums madonna produced grace jones uh david bowie Mm -hmm. he took a lot of 70s artists and just reinvented them for the 80s and we saw you know madonna is not particularly talented, but she was a hard worker. He saw that in her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like a version took like a month for her to get the vocals down and the rest is history. And the re- the the rest is now Roger. So right. um but yeah, so and that's the thing about when I see disco I see trap. Cause the same swing beat for disco I see it, you know, in the 808 and trap. And like I said, it's great music. Trap is great for 10, for four bars. And then the beat kicks in and just kills it for me. Then the rap cadence falls in and it kills it for me. But that's not the artist's fault because they make their records based on other rap records. Rap records up to 97, from 1980 to 1997, it was like, well... Uh, you're making rap records that sound like this. Why can't they sound like this? I don't want my records to sound anything like that. We went through the same thing in the 80s with the uh, Ultimate Breaks and Beats albums. Everybody had the Ultimate Breaks and Beats vinyl collection. They were sampling from that. So the same samples were showing up. The Funky Drummer shows up on like 120 rap records from 1987 to 1992. And we eventually got tired of it. And then, you know, Diamond D and Pete Rock and the in uh, Premier and ninety one, ninety two came and Large Professor is a big part of that too. Well, let's go to these record shows, let's really start digging. And toss out ultimate breaks and beaks, those are all dead. We're gonna do our own thing. So a whole lot of things are going on that can contribute to the Hamanaj this beer is kicking. <laughs> It's a sour monkey beer, my man. Got Sameness <laughs> hip hop. First of all, it's like how it was made, right? right? So in the eighties, nineties, everybody had their own lab. Everybody had their own lab. Everything was done ad- analog. Mm-hmm. So Marley Mall Studio wasn't the same as Forty Five's King Studio. wasn't the same as Herbie Love Bugs Studio. Hitman Howie T. Everybody had their own lab. They had their own approach. They had their own mechanics and. Um, now you have, you know, Pro Tools and Live and Logic. And it's, you know, it's kind of like the same thing. You just kind of like plug in and it's all about your inspiration. Right. And most of the music is going to come from your inspiration. And a lot of inspiration comes from what's hot now. You just want to plug in. And, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with trying to make music. So 
we really got to be more understanding about what you know what you're criticizing you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's just not for me it's traps not for me and the other argument is well you like trap you, you like you had miami bass you like that yeah we had miami bass we had a whole lot of different genres you know what i mean yeah so a miami record didn't sound like a seattle record Luke Skywalker didn't sound like Sir Mix-a-Lot. He didn't sound like uh, E-40 and uh, Master P in the Bay Area before uh, P went to New Orleans, which didn't sound like, you know, Steady B and Cool C, which didn't sound like... And then New York was his own planet. So he had neighbors that didn't sound like each other up there, you know what I mean? Um, And before Dilla, like, oh, man, Michigan records were awful, by the way. Like Midwest records were weird. MC man. Bree, it was before. Bree was huge. Yeah, Bree was amazing, but he made West westerns. Everything was pretty much skewed. That part, that much was true. It's a weird thing about the Mississippi River. Like east of the Mississippi was East Coast rap. Uh, down as far as Atlanta, <laughs> then you know things kind of skewed Miami bass and bass music. But you know, west of the Mississippi was all gangster rap. Uh, starting in the 90s. But di- again, different approaches to it. You know what I mean? And um, so you really can't fault people for, you know, everything happens naturally. I'm saying it's like nothing's really programmed. You're always going to skew toward hedonism. You know what I mean? But yeah, man, it's what, that's why, what, what excited me about things. That's what excited me about hip hop. I had no claims toward uh, you know, street uh, street cred. Grew up middle class in Winfield, part of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's middle class neighborhood, solidly. And, um, you know, I was always wary about putting on that, that, um, that drag. You know what I mean? Never wore my hat backwards. Never replaced a uh, Z with an S. S for Z and spelling <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? I was just really, you know, pretty much a homebody. So it was really came down to me in those records. I had a stereo, a Panasonic stereo. It's perfect for making pause tapes, you know. Turntable was wired directly to the cassette. And, you know, it was to make my tapes and put them on my Walkman and go back and forth to school. And then after school on Fridays, I would make my way to Sound of Market. Sometime Funko Marts and later Armand's. And, um... You know, it was just all strictly music. This is a love of music more than anything. I had no no claim to street cred or nothing like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Didn't because I might have been the culture vulture. I don't know. Consider, you know, uh, in the eyes of people like Scheme and you know the people that he ran with back in the eighties that you know were actually you know doing these after school jams and. Um, jams at the wind and Winfield and all these music hall jams and stuff. So, you know, old school heads, you know, I mean, everybody had to, everybody had to deal with it. You know what I mean? Everybody did, had to do old heads. I listen to Questlove's, um, Questlove Supreme a lot and running show, running theme there. Everybody talks about the Latin quarter the Melly Mel, which is who is the, the biggest rapper of his day with uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And Melly Mel would actually go up to the DJ booth and skip the record, manually skip the record that he didn't like. He would take it off. Somebody played a record he didn't like, he'd take it off. He was the hater of all haters. 
But he was the critic. I mean, he was, you know, he, may, he might have not had the vision then. Who knows? But you know, he just he knew what he knew what his rap music sounded like, and this wasn't that, and he wasn't ready for it, and he's just public enemy, most famously. But um, and apparently they had a bad show, so you know, that made them better. You know what I mean? Um, so. I don't know. It's just, it's a very weird, complicated thing, and nobody really unravels it. And I think the argument is really broken down. It's really incredibly simplified. Coming up, I was similar to you. Mm-hmm. Rather, like, I never claimed street cred, but if I did want my hat backwards, it's because I saw rappers doing it. Right. It was like, it was popular culture. We all had our hats backwards. Yeah. But I never had, like, a strong connect to the street shit until like again until I got older mm-hmm. and all my peers were on it so I got into it mm-hmm. but I can tell you right now 98 when um, DMX came out with uh, Flesh My Flesh Blood of My Blood or whatever order that it is yeah. the <laughs> album cover I was like oh, there's some some extra shit here man with the bloody album cover yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and people were like yeah it's DMX I'm like ah it's just nah man I don't nah B yeah like, like the aesthetic yeah, I'm like, I'm ninth grade. I'm going to go home and play some Pokemon instead, B. I'm not going to do this, man. You know, It's kind of dark, but I liked it, you know, at the time. And it's weird. My approach to music is I wait for the hype to die down, and then I listen to see if there's... That's how I am now. And as a result, I'm a huge DMX fan. At the time, like, where everybody's listening to it, and, you know, everybody listens to Party, but I listen to, like, album cuts. I'm a huge album cuts head, like... And I there's just a lot of people, what people call, and oh, the thing that kills me, I don't know, there's, there's so many just aspects about hip hop I don't like. Mm-hmm. I don't like <laughs> that, which just kind of kills me for me beyond trap or beyond just the whole people that are all about the culture, the culture, the culture. And oh man, I live and breathe hip hop and I do this for my mom, my dad, my kids, and put it down <laughs> like, oh, are you gonna rap? Okay, go ahead, well, rap then. <laughs> Make a record. Right. Stop making moves. Make a record. When Dame Dash signed everybody, remember when Dame Dash signed everybody that didn't have a contract? Dude, he's, we signed Nori. He has signed Joe Budden. He has signed ODB. He has signed MOP. He has signed uh, who else did he have with him? Um, making moves, right? Yeah. 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 He put them all in that in the sequel to uh, State, State Property State Two. Property. Yeah. 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 What do those records sound like though? It was never no records. It, was like it a, might have been a single. A mixtape cut here or there. Yes. But there was no, like, there was nothing. And 50 did the same exact thing with G-Unit when he signed Mob Deep. With that. It was a Mob Deep album, but mm-hmm. there wasn't. he had M.O.P., but there was an M.O.P. album right. out. And he also signed uh, Mace, but did he kind of cut that deal short? Yeah. But for the most part, uh, yeah. yeah, in terms of, like, people having these, signing all these from people to the label. I'm making moves. And that that's that was the main indicator. That it wasn't about music. It was about the image. It was about the jewelry. It was about the making moves. It was about making everything else but rap. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, as that, he wasn't making records. Who was making records? Lil Wayne was making records. Everybody, he was Lil Wayne's probably the most maligned, heated rapper in the history, even more than Vanilla Ice in some aspects. Um. People just bring up like hip hop fans, oh, he's trashed. Yeah, but he's making records. He made a lot of records. He was so prolific then. It was ridiculous. 
in, in 2007, he was going by Lil Wayne, a.k.a. featuring Lil Wayne. Yeah. And it was Wayne. crazy. Like, I, you know, and I was on that path. I just like, okay, I don't really see the, the value in his music. Like, mm-hmm. He's making music. He's not about just about making movies. It was insane. So I kind of championed him in that aspect. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He worked. He worked. And people just like that about rap. Like I, I might not, I might be marginally talented, but I'm gonna mm-hmm. make this work. Which again is not about music; it's about drive. And people like that drive and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a big reason I'm not a big Kanye. Fan. I'm a great Kanye fan, a production fan. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, those are the greatest instrumentals. Some of the greatest instrumentals that he ruined for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> The forced delivery, and he's self-conscious, and he addressed it. Right. The forced delivery and everything, and when incredible book I read, um, I think it's called Kanye West owes me three hundred dollars, and um, it's about a whole side of hip hop that I didn't even know about. This whole artist, white artist from California, he came out. I think it's from California, and he came to New What's York. What's his name? I can't remember. This you gotta look up the book. If you was, can do the Google thing. Was it Hot Carl? Hot Carl, yes. Hot Carl put out the book. Yeah, Hot Carl does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Book by Hot Carl. I think it's three hundred dollars. Is little uh, Kanye West owes me three hundred dollars, which turns out to be for a cab ride to Jersey, because he was Kanye was hunkered down in the studio. He was making beats for other people, and he was stockpiling his best beats for himself. And there's mention in the book about a meeting, and everybody he told everybody he's going to be the biggest rapper. And nobody believed him because he was that forced delivery. And he was off, and it was just, just this whole thing was, you know, just kind of weird. I think Kanye's kind of might be on the spectrum myself. Um, so, you know, I've been, you know, to a degree, just kind of, you know, I was really hard on it at, at some point, but it's come to understanding, you know, like people have their own pathologies. And, you know, it's just, we're just not used to it. You know what I mean? So when he came out, I'm just like, okay, well, Ron Fest, why don't you just ghost write for Ron? He's a great lyricist, too. His wordplay and the stuff he brings up is amazing, and it's just the delivery just kills it. The performance, the actual performance just kind of kills it for me. And that goes back to 20 years, to 97. And... First time I heard Mace. And I told you about the first time I heard Mace. I thought Lil C's had a, something happened to Lil C's. I thought it was Lil C's rapping and something happened. And I was like, well, why is he rapping like that? Why does he talk like that? Why is he mumbling? Then I understand about, you know, Killer Cam and Murder Mace. And it was an incredible uptown duo making incredible records, like, you know, Big L records. And I was like, well, what happened? Why is he, you know, why is it, where's the energy at? This is 20 years ago. Man. It's like, ah. Uh, was a uh, um, was the uh the big his big uh, record with uh, Puffy? Uh, can nobody hold me down? Yeah, when that came out, when that dropped, I was like, I, and that is crazy. Think about you know, you remember where you are when you hear certain records. It definitely did, definitely. And did. you know, the way we're streaming things are is just kind of like another file that comes down the path that comes up on your computer. Mm-hmm. But back then, man, this is a radio. And I remember I was at the Mall of America in Minnesota, and we were, like, about to drive home, and it came on the radio. And I'm like, uh, this is okay, but, you know, I don't, don't like the energy of the rapper. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to go anywhere. 
lo and behold, it's like, you know, one of the biggest rap, uh, albums in history. So, you know. It's amazing because you and I are only 10 years apart. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, the sum that can be light years. Mm-hmm. I feel like me and you have similar tastes, but we just have just certain different, like small differences. You know what I'm saying? Uh, in terms, the experience is different. You just right. came up in a different time and it wasn't as good as it was. <laughs> this is funny because I, I would say it because your era, there's a lot more of your era that's heralded mm-hmm. than was heralded in mine's. You know, of course, but my era, I mean, well, when I was, when I was a teen, you know, I had like the the Nas, Jay-Z beef, like that, that era, right. era of Nas, you know, I mean, I had, I had the Jay-Z, I had like mm-hmm. when New York started losing its grip and the South started to rise again. Yeah. Like, I had these different moments, but people always go back to like, yo, the early 90s had everything, you know, so... The early '90s is, is it all started falling apart? Then you know what I mean. Everything went was skewed toward gangster rap when gangster rose. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So Questlove has like this seven-year theory about hip hop where things change dra- drastically over like seven-year itch. Mm-hmm. Things change dra- drastically every seven years as far as recorded hip hop. And, you know, the first, like I said, those first seven years are mostly unrecorded. So, 1973, uh, the South Bronx movement and up to Sugar Hill Gang, Rapper's Delight, and King Tim by uh, the Fatback Band, which came out a week and a half later, I think. So, Fatback Band was a funk group, and they just produced a rap record. It was another funk record, but, you know, it's considered now the first rap record. Um, so that was 1980 to 1987, which was the Larry Smith era, I think. Larry Smith was a producer for um, Run DMC. He recently passed away like a year or two ago, right? years ago, yeah. He was considered the master architect of hip-hop. Um, so records just kind of like sounded like that. And, you know, like I said, um, everything is by, things are designed you know, some things happen naturally. Everything is designed. Uh, Russell Simmons himself was a big, made big changes in, in rap. Early rap was the first stylist, uh, hip-hop stylist was Rick James. This is why everybody had the, the weird, bizarre, you know, you talk about hip-hop fashion right. today as, and talk about the old school. You talk about the real old school, like early 80s. Um, so Rick James had this punk funk approach to fashion and music. He liked punk music. He liked the punk aesthetic as far as how they dress, punk rockers dress and everything. But of course, punk rockers couldn't play. And he was a Motown artist. So he was a punk artist who could really throw down and everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, so first national tour featuring a rap act it was uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five opening for Rick James. Now, before you continue, is that where that notorious photo started? Which one? So there's a photo of like uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five all dressed like wrestlers. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, pretty much. You know, they had like a lot of spandex, a lot of go-go boots and... Yeah. Yeah, like that. So... You know, it was Rick James' contribution. Um, Run DMC was coming up. 
the first or you see look at the first Run DMC photo. They're wearing these ill double knit double knit uh, polyester uh, plaid pants and turtlenecks and stuff and jaggers and stuff. So Russell wanted a more street oriented look for them. So gone were those suits, and then you have the you know Lee jeans and the uh, the Adidas and the leather jackets and Stetson hats. Mm-hmm. So it's a deliberate, very deliberate thing just to change things from the spacesuits and everything, make it more urban, make it more macho. Um, and same thing with the music. You know, Larry Smith, uh, nothing was just before sampling and everything. Um, and just created that hard, loud, big, loud hip-hop sound that was kind of known for for years. Um, so yeah, Larry Smith and then, of course, Rick Rubin up to 87 then 80 so the next seven year stage in that was um starting in 87 was marlon wall and for me everything the whole culture as far as recording music is concerned revolves around marlon wall he got it down he made it he made hip-hop um more structured toward pop you know, he had bridges, he had choruses, verses, um, and intros and everything. And another thing, you know, he, uh, Questlove interviewed him and he hated rap records. He was a big dance record uh, engineer in New York. He's a go-to man. And I went digging a few years ago in New York and I was finding all these dance records. that had his name on it. He did a joint, uh, man, the Akeem joint, right? Was it? Yeah, brothers, Akeem brothers. Yeah, himself, and yeah, yeah, because he was uh, Molly Mar was working under Mr. Magic at the time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Mr. Magic wasn't really a rap fan like that either, was he? No, in fact, you know, no more music about the suckers. That's I think that's him on the uh, the Public Enemy record. Okay. Um, and he wasn't a fan of BDP, but the once the story now the story is told, BDP's first records were really bad. Listen to him, Google him before, you know, criminal minded. Uh, the P three P is free is probably the first really good record. Everything before that is just really questionable. They had the heart, but it just weren't organized and these records are really bad and I think that's what they played for Mr. Magic. Um so yeah, everything revolves around Marley and he's is still incredibly ahead of his time the way he had everything injured uh, inju- engineered. Um, you know, he was just had things like trigger, like nobody was know how to how to how's nobody knows how to do it now. He tried to recreate it for Akai. They re released the uh, MPC, um, and he they had him recreate um a couple beats that he did back in the eighties on the MPC. So he had the technology there, but just the feeling wasn't there. And that was like a big revelation to me about. How he made about you know those home studios, those labs, how those labs were set up back in the day, um, and it was, um, but yeah, it's just like, so I, as far as I'm concerned, ever since Molly Mall, everybody's been trying to make Molly Mall records. When they try to make rap records, up to a certain point, then I think now, I think everybody's trying to make a Mike Will record, to me. I think Mike Will currently is like the most 
people trying to, you know, capture his sound. You know what I mean? Mm. But yeah, it was like Marley for just years. The way he structured his records, the way he produced the records. Even now, they're still my favorite records because there's nothing like them. Because he did the, uh, this is an underground, not this is an underground, Lord's an underground joint, right? Um, Chief Rocker? Oh, Lord's of the Underground. Yeah. Ask Game Riches about that. He knows the he knows the scoop. I heard like Marley Marley did one of the joints for for that for that group. He had a second sound Marley did. He had like his his juice juice crew, um, Cold Chillin' Sound. Mm. Then he kind of reemerged in the early nineties with uh the L- with uh Mama said Knock You Out. He produced most of that record. And Control Volume Two compilation. Was... Yeah, that's that's uh before that. That was his older sound. And then mm. yeah, the Chief Rocker. He was a producer of a lot of records. We'll say executive produced them in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But again, ask him about that because he dropped the, dropped the jewel on me about that thing. Yeah. All right, but So now, mentioning Marley Marl now, also in that era of 87 going on, mm-hmm. you had like the uh, the rising of Teddy Riley. And Teddy Huge Riley thing, yes. is credited for like New Jack Swing. Yes. But I feel like though he's credited for it, Marley Marl had great New Jack Swing remixes during that time period. Yeah, incredible remixes, yeah. Incredible, like joints for BBD, uh, Heavy, L cool, D, Heavy D, L Cool J, and yeah. some of those songs I, I liked better than what I was hearing from Teddy at the time. Well, Marley's just an incredible producer. He's just credited for hip-hop, but like I said, he had a history in dance music. and mm. um, Yeah, he yeah, ushered in the so-called golden era. I mean, he produced... The three, the three best who are considered the three best hip uh, MCs of that time and all maybe all time, uh, Rock M, uh, Big Daddy Kane, and a Cool G Rap. He did my melody for uh, Rock M, right? Yeah, and again, you know, people are debating that now. That you know what his input it was to um, Eric B and Rock M's album. Okay. Because they really don't sound like everything, anything else that Marley kind of did, so. I don't know. We want to find this. A lot, a lot of infighting and everything. So you go, you know, a good source to me was this book called "The Big Payback" by Dan Charnas. Okay. And um, best rap book I heard because everybody has their take on it, and everybody's debating like, "Oh, well, you weren't there, and this is how it went down." No, you're wrong. This is how it went down. So a lot of infighting, a lot of fuzzy memories. Dan Charnas, he started uh, at the beginning and followed the money. So the book is like the span from the South Bronx movement all the way up to 50 Cent uh, signing that um, vitamin water deal. Okay, around 0304. Uh, Chris Lighty. And, of course, so much has happened since then. It's the whole thing about hip-hop is just it's constantly transforming. And, you know, every book you have is relevant up to a point, and it's going to be missing stuff. Right. I have a huge library in this, like, you know, oh, it was good up into, like, 2003, mm-hmm. maybe. <laughs> a lot of revisions that are never going to happen in those library in that, in my rap library, man. Because that's from 03 until now, Lives. 14 years. A lot has definitely happened. Different sounds, different artists have emerged, different, like, where the industry has definitely changed. You're going from them trying to hang on to yeah. physical copies and mm-hmm. the death of mom and pop record stores to Best Buy popping up and then those stores being shot down because digital started to rise. Yep. 
and now big terrible thing man Napster rose just as we started making money everybody was losing money in rap music and then and then until like you know 2000 it really started popping for people mm-hmm. and bam Napster just came in and just people still making money but not as much money as they could have been making I remember Dr. Dre said hey Napster's keep me from feeding my kids you're right <laughs> I, me- I remember that statement so then, then that's where it stops being about the music and starts selling that image and starts selling, you know, headphones and, you know what I mean, and the whole image about being a rapper. So maybe that's that's the key there that you no longer, you know, the music will only get you so far. You gotta, you know, a lot of it has to be sold from that image. Right. You know what I mean? Because a lot of artists now are saying, oh yeah, we're getting our money from doing touring now, yeah. merch. You know, other other appearances, yeah. Not, not for music anymore. Well, the thing about live rock music is, is almost sucks as a rule to me now. And it's got to be a, a point. I was going out a lot and got back to Philly. I, got, I left college in '98. Got back to Philly. Started going to you know shows at the Truck and whatever at Transit and so forth. And it's just like. Okay, you have, you know, five acts maybe in the night, and they come out and they do, you know, half hour, and could not figure out why the changes, the set changes in between shows, because there was no set changes. It was like maybe the DJ wanted his setup different, maybe he wanted a battle style or, you know, traditional style, maybe he wanted his fader on the right, whatever. Why is it taking 45 minutes, 30, half hour, 35 minutes to change between shows? Then I realized, and then I'm watching the performances, and just there's only so much you can do, man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and starting with Rakim, uh, you know, one of the most adored, probably the you know considered by many the best to ever do it, but best to ever do on our record, because he was he did live shows, but he wasn't battle tested like the generations of MCs that came before him. Um, you know, he came in, he wasn't even supposed to make that record with Eric B. He was supposed to be Freddie Fox, and everybody knows that story, and Freddie Fox couldn't make the session. Uh, Rakim stepped in and did his thing, and the rest is history. But, you know, that was the first time we heard him was on Wax. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, most MCs had to hit the stage at the LQ, at the Fever, at all these venues back in the 80s. Um... And, um, you know, kind of apply the trade there. So it was always a stage thing first before the record. Conversely, you could be great on stage and be terrible on record. Like Kumo D, never really, he has a couple of good records. He has a couple of good barbecue records, good cookout records, good <laughs> memories there, Wild Wild West. And, you know, his first record, you know, was kind of like. How you like me now. Yeah. yeah, you know, it was cool, but it was dated. Almost instantly when it came out, especially compared to his biggest rival, LL. Um, so, but at the time when he was on in on a stage in New York in the Bronx, at those parties uptown in Harlem and everything, those tapes are amazing. Kumail D was, I think, he was considered the you know the top of his game in his day. Just didn't translate to record. Um. So yeah, recorded hip hop is a really weird thing, man. There's so many records that never get played. It's a whole history that was never told. You know what I mean? And I don't know. It's like 
because now that's the norm for for uh, for artists. Yeah, they're going the recording first, first, and then testing their feet out on stage. I mean, stage. why not? You can do it in your in, do it in your bedroom, right? So a lot of people now, I'm like, man, the album, like the music is dope, but their performance kind of stinks. But it takes takes some, oh. some time to get it because Hove was the same way from where I was here. Like Jay Z stage performance wasn't good I'm until sure. A while. Yeah, I don't can't can't speak to it. I haven't seen any old performances or everything, but you know it's. Mm. I stopped going out as a result. That's the, that's the bottom line of that story is I stopped going. Even to performers I really like. Best rapper, rap shows I've been to, of course, The Roots, but, you know, it's a hip-hop band, and they're they're in their own lane, basically, right. you know, and it's all about the stage and all about playing live and everything. So I've never been to a bad Roots show, um, and I've been to a lot of Roots shows. It's probably the group I've seen more than any other group. Um Second, bet, uh, second, that being De La Soul, who struggled on stage at first, but then got it together, and I think they're the best. They were for, for a while the best I've seen. Third would be Ice Cube. Really? So Ice Cube at the TLA, his energy, he's, you know, he's performing records from 20 years ago. Like, he was still 20, you know, mm-hmm. it's that same age. From like 1990, like you know, from like you know, uh, America's Most Wanted, he'll hit the stage, he'll tear the stage up. Damn, he's incredible. Um, WC is kind of like his hype man. Mm-hmm. WC would do his own records. He's incredible. Light crowd at the TLA. Um, we're, really weird night. The War and Peace tour. So it was this Cube and WC on stage with the DJ. I forget his DJ form at the time. Uh, two-story high Napoleon bust of Ice Cube and um, in the back of the venue was like Busta Rhymes and some of the flip mode squad just taking it all in. Mm-hmm. Half the floor is empty and a bunch of us in front of it and Cube just came out and just just the most exhilarating one of the most exhilarating performances I've ever seen. Gangstar. Gangstar always a great show. Worst show I've seen in Philly was um Capone and Noriega. Really? Came out at 1 a.m. I heard about this, yo. <laughs> I might not have been from you, but I heard like, yo, they had a, a concert in Philly. Out, maybe it was, you know, the venue's closed at 2. They came out maybe 1, being generous. I mean, it was definitely after 1 o'clock they came out. And, um, you know, Nori did his thing, but mm-hmm. it was just the energy. It was like, damn, we waited this long for this. It was terrible. And just kind of like just, I don't know, they're good MCs. And, did good shows, but for the most part, I'm just like, I just don't have the patience anymore. Man. It just kind of kills it for me. So it's all the experience has always been uh, radio and records. And not even CDs. I don't, I still, after 30 years of buying re- records, albums, I still argue that it's a single space rec- uh, genre. It just does not. It's not really album oriented. You try to make albums out of it. Even all your classic best albums are there's just duds. There are very few front to back classic. One of the few albums I've aged over time that are I haven't had any debates over mm-hmm. is like it's Redman's Muddy Waters. Muddy whatever I love. Yeah, back to front. Just back to front. no duds. Because uh, probably one. Uh, probably my favorite. My favorite catalog of any rapper. Redman. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like a fan people of all this like stuff. love um 
uh, there is a dark side that's his weakest album to me. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, just just a solid career, and you know, got kind of sketchy toward the end. I think there was more Def Jam's mishandling of his career. The yeah. Red Going Wild album, yeah, it definitely uh, got Red the Going Wild was cool. Um, he had an album called Reggie, and I just walk into Target one day and just kind of just on the shelf, and I hadn't heard anything about it. I'm like, well, what's going on? I saw, like, one music video from that. That was, like, during a time when, like, music videos really getting played on, like, on Smash mm -hmm. and on, like, that. Yeah. But, yeah, there, there was nothing. But that was, like, Def Jam's way of being, like, okay, shoo, shoo, older rapper. Right. You know, we were saving our money for the younger cats. And the younger acts they had on Def Jam, they did nothing with them. Right. So it was like he might as well just get that money over the rep, man, because he, he's going to make it work. Right. But that, that was just the transition for Def Jam as a label because, my goodness. Yeah. Even on Instagram, Red Man is just amazing. Just the personality is there. You just imagine that probably the best moments for Red Man probably weren't on record. He's probably like on like all the time, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He just has that sense of humor, and you know a lot of people just lack that. And that's a big thing for me, man. You got to have that. A fighting sense of humor about yourself because you know it's just otherwise it's just like why am I listening to you you know what I mean am I, I'm listening I'm not listening to a person I'm listening to somebody just wearing that drag again that's why I like Method Man because Method Man as hard as he was he <laughs> had those comedic moments all the time yeah you know so I, I yeah and I think that's what I liked about early Buster too mm -hmm. because my favorite Buster era a lot of you not is going to go from leaders of the new school right up until the Genesis album. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like Big Bang Theory, mm -hmm. but once he cut cut the locks cut, cut the locks off, mm -hmm. I said, "All right, this is a definite gonna be this definitely a change and Buster here." And after that happened, I couldn't really get back on the train again. Right. He had certain records like "Don't Touch Me." Now he had the old school like yeah, yeah, yeah. James Brown calling response to it, but right. it was it was nothing like listen to the listen to the coming uh, when disaster strikes ELE. Mm -hmm. And then going towards anarchy, you know. Um, yeah. Actually, ELE is my favorite. I think of all time. I think ELE skits and front to back, as yeah. far as front to back rap records and skits and everything on that record is just amazing. And then Sephamore was pretty dope too, because mm -hmm. when he had like those hard hitting like Dilla beats before. Because I think that next time his album came out, was think it might have been after Dilla passed. Right. So yeah, I don't think he got like. The joints from Dilla, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Because the time he was sick and all that. But yeah, it's, it's just interesting seeing how certain artists, in my mind, have like certain errors. Right. And after a while, I can't dig them. Because you know who I used to love? But I think around the time of the cannabis feud, mm -hmm. I wasn't really a fan of him anymore. Huh. It was LL. Right. Because to me, LL's first album up until, let's see, first album. Uh, was a uh, um, bad album mm -hmm. up until Mama said knock you out. Mm -hmm. I dug. Mm -hmm. Then he did the uh, shots, shots to the, the dome, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't like that until the Easy Mo B remix of Pin Cookies in the Trap in a Plastic yeah, Bag. Incredible remix, yes. Great remix, and I didn't hear a sample used <clears> in such, <throat> such a dope way until Mob Deep or Infamous. Of course, but so you had that single um, Pin Cookies in the Plastic Bag. Fast forward that to these albums. It just felt like he was trying to be Mr. Smith 
Well, I was called Mr. Smith, but he was trying to be like this, like this ladies' man. Well, that was always, yeah, always since uh, I need love and that. Yeah. Speaking of rap records that I hated, at the same time of JJ Fat, and it wasn't just. That's a big. That's a big genre for me. I mean, just, just that's just weird, man. What you remember? But yeah, it was JJ Fat, Supersonic, and then I need love because it was a slow down rap, and it's kind of corny. But now I listen to it. The beat is amazing. Uh, it's an incredible recording, but uh, the influence that it had, everybody had to have that smooth rap on their record. That one cut, when hip-hop settled into that that pattern, when they started making actual records, people yeah. started investing in records. Like I said, it's not really album-oriented genre to me. It's always been based on singles, but record companies wanted to get most out of their artists. So you made these albums, and you had the one reggae cut, the one dance hall knockoff cut you might have had a rock cut and you had the slow jam cut and there was always a worse cut on the record <laughs> it's funny that you mention it now because I've never looked at hip hop albums as being single oriented mm-hmm. but now that I look back no this is genre in general just just you everybody has that one single everybody has a single and I see it now I mean I look at back at look at Ja Rule's like, career his albums his I feel like his career was largely single oriented mm-hmm. Because nobody can really tell you, like, yo, man, this certain album is this, certain album is that. Mm-hmm. Like, his first album, Vinny Vetti Vici, is a song he has with uh, Eric Sermon that I love. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the entire, all of his albums, yeah. there were, I don't have those those moments. Like, like say, if I had a Sade album, mm-hmm. which the entire album is right. a moment. You get it, you right. know? But, yeah, you're right. Look, listen back to certain albums, like... I listen to Jay Z's Reasonable Doubt. There are certain songs that stand out more than others, right? Singles, please. Yeah, Twenty Two Twos or whatever that that song is kind of just it's a great record for me, except mm-hmm. for that one cut. Right. Um, Great Adventures of Slick Rick, considered a classic album. There's um, that there's a Kit What's the Scoop. He did a uh, Night Rider rap. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Messes up the whole record. This is time when it was a record. You had records and tapes in that CD so you can skip. Right. And that was a big part of it. That was a big part, man. Just once you could skip songs, you would just skip. Um, gosh, something I can't explain by Nice and Smooth. They put a slow jam, off-key slow jam cover of uh, Always and Forever at the top, at the second song of the album. Favorite records, destroys the album. I had the cassette. I had to fast forward every time, and you had to get your fast forward and rewind game. And Lord forbid you had the double sided Walkman where the fast forward became the rewind if you <laughs> were careful with your buttons. Yeah. You know. But once you could skip CDs, oh, it was amazing, man. Once you could make your own pause tapes off of CDs, you could delete all those, all that filter that you didn't like. Yeah, it's all about you know people's the whole lot of stuff that people haven't unpacked about hip hop, man. And you really got to pre- preserve and curate. You know what I mean? I think and I think we're all culture vultures in that that um in that aspect, man. Doesn't it's not even race related. To be perfectly honest, man. I personally think there's one thing I've been thinking about about recently is that Black America has a about as much um, claim to hip hop as it does to reggae. 
it's always been like an outsider thing. I like look at looking at the history of hip hop. These are all like first and second generation African Americans. They come from a whole different tradition mm-hmm. than jazz and R and B and rock and roll. It's a whole different animal. Man. Come from Jamaica. They come from Barbados. They're children of immigrants mm-hmm. in New York. And like I said, New York is its own island. It's nothing like it like the rest of America. It's not nothing like Nashville or Memphis or New Orleans where the rest of the music came from. Mm-hmm. It's and hip hop is just an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different genres. It's all the best records and all the best parts of the best records. Be it disco rock or whatever, you know, just these kids just picked up on it. Bambada just picked up on those breaks. Flash just picked up on those breaks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this incredible movement came out of the Bronx in New York and you know it wasn't even it's just about the Bronx it's so crazy it's like New York is so fast and then you know Brooklyn and Queens and Uptown and everybody just started tapping into it it made it was a lot of freedom that you know that invest in them that came from the whole culture you know what I mean cause you know I'm perfectly honest with you black America hated rap up until Diddy found a way to sell it to them. Talk from 1980 to, what, 1997, that breaking point? Mm-hmm. That was a tipping point? That's Diddy's claim to hip-hop is that he sold hip-hop to black America, to the black, to the rest of black America. We love our, we're R&B. It was R&B and soul. Generations, we just came up on it, and you know, we all invest in this myth about hip-hop, especially in the 80s. We all, and you, you hate 227. So you hate the TV show 227. I hate it. From Gibbs. Yes. And everybody has this 227 myth about hip-hop. Like everybody, everybody loved rap in the 80s. We all hung out on the stoop with a boombox and listened to Run DMC. Mm-hmm. Everybody had a Run DMC track jacket and shell top Adidas. And, hey, Bobby, why don't you run inside and get the, <laughs> the refrigerator box and do, you know, spin on your back. <laughs> yeah, I think I will do that. Yo, it just was not the reality, man. You know, how every family has that one cousin that shops at Hot Topic and has the where's the cat? Yeah, the cat ears. Yeah, oh, one God. Black, black, everybody, every the one in every family. It's a black cousin that shops at Hot Topic and where's the cat ears. That everybody kind of talks about behind the back. Yep, that's what you. That's what we were in the eighties. If we like rap music, we had to fight for it. In Philadelphia, we had to fight for it. So getting back to the Power 9 at 9 countdown, that was the battlefield. It was us. We liked rap. We had to vote. We had to call into Power 99 and vote every night. We had to stand behind these records that we love. We wanted to hear the records. They weren't playing them. Okay, hip-hop in Philly was Lady B on Sundays. Sunday afternoon, after church. I was at my grandma's. We couldn't play it loud. You know, my dad was downstairs watching. We all went to my grandmother's after church. After we went to White Rock. She had a beautiful brownstone, beautiful townhouse on Arch Street. And we would watch, you know, she had Prism. She, the, the, the one fam, one of the family actually had Prism. So we would watch, you know, sports on Prism. And then... Um, Turn on the radio and tune in to Lady B Sunday afternoons. 
the Sunday afternoons and Friday, late late Friday nights after everything else. It was it was the rap show on Power Ninety Nine. You know what I mean? Then KDU was playing it, so you can only get it through if you want a rap record. A lot of it you had to get through college record, college radio, which is addresses the race part of it. That a lot of early hip hop adapters were indeed white college students. Because they were playing the edge, they you know college radio rejects all top forty records. They play college records. You had the CMJ. Look at those CMJ charts. You know what I mean. My brother went to college in '86. He went to Philly Dickinson University, um, and he used to sneak me records from their library. You know they had like extra singles and stuff there, and he used to tape stuff off the radio, send it back to me. Then we had KDU here in Philly. Um, Good with the other rap shows. I'm really bad with uh, radio DJs and you know other than Lady B at the time and Cosmic Kev in the '90s, who still does the thing late Friday nights. Even now, it's today, man. It's it's I you know I'm in LA. We have K Day, which is like the first 24/7 rap legendary station. Legendary station. They went away for back to back hard and they play strictly '90s rap. And you can hear hip hop. 24 in 3 a.m. They're playing Pistol Grip Pump in 3 a.m. I love it. It's the most exhilarating thing. Driving around listening to K-Day in, in L.A. Get to Philly. Um, and, you know, Power 9 still does this thing. I don't know what the format is now, but I think things kind of go quiet storm after 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Yeah. Okay. They might do trap things. I'm not, you know, I listen to Power 99 for the lunchtime breaks because they play the older records. Mm-hmm. And I'll tune in and listen to trap for, you know, half hour, and it, it really affects me. <laughs> I go into a day, I'll just be like driving, like, okay, I got to turn this off. This is a, a really visceral thing, listening to trap for like more than 20 minutes for me. It's crazy. But enough about that. So back to the 80s, and. Us calling in the Power 99 and battling the half of the population that wanted to listen to New Edition and um, Ready for the World and what, you know, whatever was on the radio, whatever R&B was popping right then. Mm-hmm. And calling in and requesting Queen of Rocks by Roxanne Shante or It Takes Two or Plug Tune In. It was a battle, man. And they used to put they used to put girls on the radio all the time. So you need to go on ahead with the LL Cool J. It's all about new edition. It's all about right, right, Ricky and Mike. We don't want to hear that LL Cool J. You can turn that off. You know. You used to always just build promos about that. It was crazy. It was like a battle on the radio. We had we had to vote to hear the records. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we had to wait till late Friday, Sunday afternoon. Or whenever the college stayed. And we weren't even checking for the college station. We didn't even know. It was crazy. My brother we used to go down to Poppy, which is a magazine, international magazine store, again on South Street, after the South Street Renaissance of the when they built Tower, Tower was the hub and all these things were popping up on South Street. So you go to Poppy, uh, you go to certain newsstands in Philly, they had NME and Melody Maker, which were weekly British music public, uh, was it weekly? Yeah, weekly or bi-weekly, uh, British music publications. And they do the top 10 list and number one be Public Enemy. I'm like, that's amazing. I want to live in London and, you know, 
I want to live in a culture where, you know, Public Enemy and Big Daddy Kane and all these records, like, posting Molly Mall records I never heard of on their top 10 charts, top 10 of the week. It's crazy. You pick up the Face magazine and just be these beautiful colors. This is before the Source and before all this stuff. And British, the, the British were just mad for hip-hop. Europe was mad for hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole just other branch of rap we never speak of. Um, and it was like, it was, wasn't generally popular. It was considered a joke. It's considered kids' music. Oh, y'all like that? It's kids' music. You ever watch hip-hop artists on Soul Train? Questlove talks about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. He's public enemy, you know, everything Rock M, all these. They put it on Don Cornelius, his hatred for rap, or his, not hatred or animosity, his apprehension to put to exposing rap artists after someone putting soul in R&B. And it's, it's shocking. I understand it. The aesthetic is definitely not there. He might have considered it as less musical than what he's, you know, put on, but he's just putting on Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and all these amazing acts for 15, 10, 12, 15 years before he put on uh, Eric B. Rock and the Public Enemy. And it was good. Those artists, once those artists were getting exposure, Mike, let me tell you, man, it was the most exciting thing. That excitement, man. But now I look at it and I look at the crowd and this is R&B crowd and the mannerisms. They're overselling the hip-hop enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pumping their fists and they're doing, you know, walking around the b-boy stances and everything's exaggerated. And it seems like they were clowning the artists, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It seems very staged and very inauthentic. I don't know how much authenticity you're looking for from Soul Train dancers, but that's, you know, it's kind of paint. It's kind of hard to watch, you know. And, you know, the, uh, the, rap, the artists are doing pre- record the tracks which kind of sucked too but you know you're getting a record that you like so you got that performance and it was just it's good as long as you ignore what's going on around the artists you know what i mean and you can kind of tell it was just like nobody was taking it seriously and you know how could you go back to rapper's delight like i said probably the biggest may be the biggest 12 inch single in history music and you know it was a global phenomenal phenomenon uh automatically automatically went to europe went to japan you can find the, your foreign pressings of that record anywhere went through europe uh got to europe was so popular um well that's one arm of it in the united states um there was a most of the early big rap records were novelty rap, uh com- comedic records mm-hmm. so yeah rapping rodney rodney dangerfield had a rap rap, rap album um you had chevy chase did a cover of rappers like this is amazing it was my favorite rap record when i was coming up really was, yeah chevy chase it sounds like a dos effects record now he's like just doing like a suburban and that was a whole joke and it's a white white people doing and it's a joke that exists to this day whitey does the hip-hop they call it uh, Everything is terrible.com has a whole hour compilation of Whitey Does It Hip Hop, which they just found found footage of just white people rapping, and that's the joke. Right. So that goes back to, you know, Rappers Light and 
disco music and is everybody was doing these novelty records. And so the rap and Duke. Genre itself. Was that? And the rapping Duke. Rapping Duke is rapping. Okay, so yeah, rapping. Rapping um, John Wayne. Yep. There's at least three rapping Ronald Reagan records. Really? Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury. The cartoons behind Doonesbury made one. Oh, that's hilarious. There's rapping Ronnie, and there's like another one. If you go, if you dig long enough, you'll find at least three rapping Ronald Reagan records. Rapping Ronald Reagan, rapping John Wayne, rapping Honeymooners, Joe Piscopo, uh, rapping Hitler, which was Mel Brooks, and rapping Louis the Fourteenth, also Mel Brooks. It's good to be the king. Wow. It's good to be the king, by the way. Incredible record. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It came out of History of the World. Mel Brooks did this uh, movie, History of the World, Part 1. And he just... he it's, The production on it is amazing. i got to research the record to find out who makes it. Then Sylvia Robinson, who owns Sugar Hill Gang, she covered that record. It's good to be the queen. It's the same quality record, but, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. She just kind of played off Mel Brooks. Blazing Saddles, The Producers... Comic legend, right? And he did, uh, Young Frankenstein, yes, Frankenstein, if you pronounce it, yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. He made it's a legit, it's a fun, re- it's a good, well produced record. It's not mm-hmm. like a, a cash and it's a joke, but he put production value into it amazingly enough. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like a whole genre of just novelty records, nobody thought it was going to last. And it just kind of kept, you know, reinventing itself. Marley Maul reinvented it. And, um, but, you know, even till today, people still think it's going to, like, peter out any minute now. Now it's weird, though. It's like a different, whole different animal. It's like, it's the American music. It's premier American music, you know what I mean? It dominates the charts. Um, You know, Nicki Minaj recently had that post about the white rapper. It's a great time to be a white rapper. <laughs> Something like five rap white uh, artists are on the rap charts at the time and everything. Um, which is you know it's weird, but you know it's it's where your heart is. I mean, where, where's the uh, who has the, who rightfully at this point in time has a claim on it? For me, like the first that first generation is the only person that had a legit claim on hip hop. Cool mm-hmm. Herc, Grandmaster Flash, Bambada. Those kids in the Bronx. Yeah, Grandmaster Flowers, all them cats. Yes, they yeah. had a legit claim on it. Um, but hey, you made a beautiful thing, and then everybody wants to be part of it. You can't fault that for it. That's you. That's all on you. You know what I mean? But again, it just got to be like a, the drag. You know what I mean? Stop being about the music and start being about the feeling, the street cred, how it made you look, how down it made you look. This genre has become like so big, and everybody wants to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Like I find myself not liking hip hop for that reason. Like I'm kind of picky when it comes to certain things I get involved in. Mm-hmm. If it gets too popular and too widespread, mm-hmm. I pull back from it, right? Because I don't want to be like everybody else. I don't like that. So me, like these days, I'm going back listening to old German bass records. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of the reasons why I got into, into Goldie. As much as I did. Right. Because, I mean, as drum and bass is worldwide, people know about it. Right. But everybody is in their bedroom trying to be the next drum and bass guy. Right. I mean, nobody's trying to follow after, like, Goldie or Storm and Chemistry. Nobody's trying to be the next versions of them. 
it's really strange thing, man. Cause you saw the the Y two K, all that pre-millennium tension. Speaking of tricky, right? And they, you know, tricky. that whole um, the whole trip hop movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you saw this whole future music coming back, coming out, and you know, it's seventeen years ago, all that music came out, and it's like, I don't know. It's not nothing really felt. Everything went retro for a long time. 2000s just the sounds were like all familiar and everything I thought it's a great time for experimentation with drum and bass and everything mm-hmm. especially in the 90s the Goldie and Ronnie Size um, those two records there I thought that was going to be the future of music and experimentation and music and uh, there's a lot of money to be had in hip hop so it keeps going back to that you know what I mean that's what it's got people just went where the money is you know what I mean? There's really no money in experimentation, um, sadly. <laughs> there was a game that came out on Dreamcast. Came out in 2000, Jack Brown Radio. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to me, that game was like kind of showing me what the world was going to be like. Right. You know, not everybody ro- rolling around rollerblades, graffiti and shit, but just right. <laughs> in terms of the music, the culture, seeing seeing where things could possibly go. And then I was kind of shocked, but not surprised, seeing that the world really really wasn't ready to change like that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, Japan is like that. Harajuku is like that. It's a went. lot like that. It's just crazy. It's like it's better than that. It's Dude. like a, a Jack Ryan Radio is a stripped-down version of what the reality in Japan is. You saw the promised land, man. I did. I did. And, you know, and that's a big part of traveling is experiencing new things and but and then realizing, having revelations about your own thing. Right. And just walking by a bike and, you know, unlock bikes and realizing that you come from a kleptomaniacal culture that, you know, it was not chained down, it's yours. And, you know, we're there as a culture of respect. You know, that's someone else's property. You do not touch it. Why would you even think that? Like, there's something wrong with me. Like, I saw it, and I saw, well, why hasn't anyone taken that bite? Where on the other on the other side of things, it's just like, no, why would you want to take someone else's property? Why would you even think that in the first place? So, um, out of that culture of respect... In Japanese, you people talk about culture vultures, but they disinvested in the culture. They respect, you know, past traditions, you know, just like anything else, like their own. Feel of Japan, all that stuff is well-preserved, and um, you'll find um, cults. You'll find little, you know, just cults built around. I call it a cult culture, but anything black exploitation i saw it all there b-boy culture just a story about b-boy story about 50s and 60s um reggae and ska culture in london people but they lived that so-called harajuku girls the shop girls in that district that dressed like fly girls just be just as a Thursday afternoon, Thursday two o'clock. They just dress like that, like a fly girl in living color. They just love that part of that time and want to express it. You know what I mean? It was like a very genuine thing. 
it's his own form of drag, but it's like it's a lot of it's, it was completely sincere, and I saw it there. So I went over for you listeners. I went to um uh this time last year I made a pack with Scheme Richards to you know to meet him in Japan in Tokyo, whenever he did his um month long residency there, where he you know he plays you know breaks and you know hip hop for you know. He has a following over there, and I wanted to experience that firsthand. And uh, I did hit uh, one a date that the week I was over there. I was there for ten days, and I saw it, and I saw it. You know, just the appreciation there, and the appreciation, and the care that went into the club, and the system was amazing, and you know, everything was balanced, and everything. There was a lot of love just put in everything. You know what I mean? Uh, went to a cassette. The store, a record store built around cassettes and everything was curated and nothing was in a broken case. Everything was in a new case. The original cassettes, the inserts, the cassettes, everything were clean. It looked brand new. They put in new cases and shrink. Everything was shrink wrapped. They had vintage Walkmans. It's all lined up. Everything was clean. I purchased one. It plays like it was brand new. Although it was, you know, 20 years old. And I'm just like, just that amount of love and care that people, you know, just put into that thing. There's nothing exploitative about it. It's the antithesis of everything that I, you know, I hate, you know, and I hate, I've grown to hate uh, here at home. This exploitation and the, the idea that things are disposable. Mm-hmm. Cherish everything. It was, and it was, a, it was just certain calm just came around me just seeing that and it was just exciting and you know it was just that was just one aspect just the music aspect mm-hmm. and that goes into everything it just goes into you know youth culture and you know you have the anime and the manga culture and which are considered really juvenile here you know what I mean or you know child you know you're a man child if you're into those things but you know it's just big respect for that culture there you know what I mean it's a very serious thing See, it's an art form to me, like, I grew up on anime, like all the cartoons, mm-hmm. like the Vampire Hunter D's, the Akira's, we're talking about the Ninja Scrolls, the mm-hmm. Ronin Warriors, and all that. Mm-hmm. But I can't front, man. Mm-hmm. Once that cartoon series Naruto became popular, mm-hmm. and I started going like down where the Art Institute is at, because it was to be a Tower Records there, yeah. it became FYE. Yeah. I would see these kids like wearing the Naruto headbands and Yeah, the first outfits. time I saw a Naruto headband, I was, I was, that I remember that day. That's how confused I was. I remember that that moment. Mm. Uh, I saw a kid with a new Rudo headband. I'm just trying to comprehend what the, what is that? What are you? Are you? And he wasn't wearing that as a headband. That might have been like a big part of it. So mm-hmm. it was just like, but um, yeah, you know what I mean. It's just you see it. For my brother, it was when NXS blew up. Uh, uh, the Devil Inside, when the yeah. Kick album came out for NXS is a, uh, in the 80s, is a group called NXS. Um, Need You Tonight is a big song, and that was on an album called Kick. And they were kind of like an indie. They had, a, you know, some pop success there. Mm-hmm. But you know, it had this album called Kick, and it was like the biggest record in 1987, I think. And my brother goes to the uh, show at the Spectrum, and it's just a bunch of kids that weren't there a year before, and it said it's kind of... Kind of spoiled it for him, but at the you know the band was there. You know what I mean? They they, they killed it. So it just just I don't know, man. 
I just relate to like so much of that now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I don't know, man. Yeah, it's all it all started for me with that myth. I mean, well, that didn't start with the myth. I look look at how people consider hip hop like they were down from day one. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a very hated, very uh, shunned, outcast type of thing back in the eighties. You no, know, you had you had hits. People liked them. It was fun, but it was like a novelty thing. You know what I mean? Okay, let's go back to R and B. That was fun. Let's go back to R and B. Uh, and you know, it's fun. It's not going to last. Let's go back to this R and B stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? And then, uh, and then um, everything is is and it's crazy. And it's, it's being in Philadelphia, and there's a lot of pride for me. And it's really gone gone unexplored, but. Um, girls ain't nothing but trouble. Fresh Prince. Yeah, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and PSK. Scooby and the D. influence of those records, um, and how different they are. PSK is, you know, Schooly D's kind of like, you know, hip hop was about, you know, it was about flipping TV theme songs mm-hmm. and having fun and goofy and I did, you know. This story about this girl that happened the other day. PSK is a really dark story. It's like a Donald Goins book. Uh, Parkside Killers, for those who don't know. Yeah, yeah. they came from from down the block. Yes. Down the block from Winfield is, you know, Parkside, Parkside Avenue. And the Parkside District was like, a, you know, like night and day. And um, it's literally the other side of the tracks from Winfield. Um. And this brilliant, you know, local artist, Schooly D, and he, he had this amazing, I'll never forget, there's a corner store down there. And he re- recreated the uh, Funkadelic cover on the front of it. And it was there for days. It was like a landmark for us. Mm. Uh, this painting that he did at this um, corner store, and when they tore it down, it like sucked. And for years, I didn't know it was him that did that with school, you know, Schooly. I call him Mr. Weaver out of respect when I see him. Mm-hmm. Um probably my favorite Philadelphian, my favorite living Philadelphian. But, you know, he did his record PSK and it's considered the first gangster record of all time. And, Gucci time. And, and it had a, it had, you know, it was, it was a rap circuit back in the day. It was a very underground thing. It was like the Chicklin circuit. And this record hit and it was all about, then it was all about Houdini running MC. Um, the Fat Boys, maybe. And Grandmaster Flash before that. So there was an infrastructure there, and there was there were there were clubs and DJs in each city that played it, you know, mm-hmm. on little tiny record, you know, radio stations. But again, very under underground uh, thing. So PSK blew blew up, um, and you start hearing this cadence, you start hearing this sound. You heard it, in, you hear it in uh, Boys in the Hood. You hear it in Six in the Morning. Ice too, yeah. Particularly in Six in the Morning. Um. And there's a story about um, Schooly going down to Miami back in the day and, make, and meeting with L- Uncle uh, Luke Skywalker. And Luke is, yeah, man, they're bootlegging your record. He's like, what? Yeah, he went to a record store and there were like PSK. People just, you know, bootlegging PSK. He just loved it so much. And it's kind of like, you know, before things went viral, they just kind of just got gained in popularity in these underground venues. So, you know, that record, and again, going back to Melody Maker and NME magazines in the UK, Schooly D records, Schooly D charting, articles about them. I had to go, you, you had to import the culture to America. That's how crazy it was. 
back in the day. That's how shunned it was. Not necessarily by white America. There's a lot of white Americans, and especially college students, adapted it. Mm-hmm. But it was it was shunned by just so much culture. I mean, but by just American culture that the real stuff you had to read, and me and my brother had to read imported magazines to find out about it. It was crazy. You know? I remember when Scotland Rock was killed. I we I found out a month later in Spin magazine. I wasn't it probably mentioned it on rap radio if you didn't weren't taping religiously, you missed out on a lot. See now you'll find out via Twitter as soon yeah. as it happens. As soon as it happens. Exactly. As it's happening, you find out. A month yeah. went by, you know. The next edition of Spin magazine, I'll never forget, man. Scotland Rock dead. I was like, My goodness. That was eighty seven, right? Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Eighty seven, very early eighty eight. That was a crazy story how that happened. But it's, and it's amazing. Now, uh, let's get to a topic that I, I want to talk about. Sure. Now, we talked about the magazine, Spin Magazine, right? Yeah. Journalism. Yeah. Hip-hop journalism. Yeah. Now, this in this era now, because the reason why I want to talk about it so bad right now is because I'm seeing how you have you had writers, mm-hmm. like Nelson George, for example. Nelson George is a, yeah. It's like w- one of the preeminent like hip hop journalists ever because he was covering everything from like the Village Voice and all the other like NY publications. Well, Billboard, he started in like 79, 80. So he was there just, he was just covering black music in general. Yeah, in general. Yep. But he was there, you know, he saw the whole evolution of things. Yeah. Right. So definitely. Yeah, people like him going down, people like Elliot Wilson, Double XL, and all that. So all these different people who were writing. In, in between to now, yeah, you have Twitter, you have Instagram, and you have these people who create these YouTube channels, mm-hmm. and are now who gain a bunch of popularity, and now are calling themselves like Vlad and academics and people like that, oh, and they're like, we're hip hop journalists, it's hip hop journalism right now at its finest, and yeah. I I disagree, like I do my listen. Every time I hear them say, oh, we're hip-hop journalists, I'm like, it's, it's a difference between actually covering the culture mm-hmm. rather than you just, like, finding people to exploit or finding stories to exploit. Right. But that's not hip-hop journalism. For your hip-hop journalist, you have to be a great journalist, period. And... Right. Again, it's... It's the drag, man. <laughs> it's people wearing their hip-hop drag. They want to be down. They want to be the, the knock. They want to be the source of all these things. Yeah. And everybody has a voice in it. That's the thing. There's, there's, well, along with the elimination of the bar and the selling of the bar, everybody has a voice in hip hop now. Nobody, there's no, it kind of like, I don't know. It's for me, it's a weird thing to say, but there's upside to fascism. Things got really democratic with the digital age. You know what I mean? Everybody had access. Uh, Everybody had access to it. Everybody had access to music, to the music, and everybody has their own uh, opinion. Mm -hmm. And everybody has access to a medium where they can give their opinion on stuff. Whereas in the 70s, it was a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. It was Melly Mel. It was a DJ. It was Mr. Magic. 
it was a dictatorship, kind of. You know what I mean? The crowds, you know. Uh, you put records up, and that DJ, that radio DJ, Red Alert, Red Alert, Mr. Magic, uh, Lady B. And Lady B, not so much. She was a champion of just rap records. She just wanted... It's a really vibrant culture, and she wanted us to be, you know, listen to it. Listen, this is a great record, I think. It deserves exposure. She's on song Hero 2 in the city. Absolutely. And I know recently I saw that she wasn't on on 103, 100 to beat anymore. Yeah, that's a big thing going down right now where she's uh, no longer. Yeah, on the radio, and I'm just, you know, I don't understand that considering how. Well, there's been patches where she hasn't been on the radio now, but, yeah, it's a big void now. I mean, yeah, because she was, like, one, one of the last. They switched formats. Supporters, you know yeah. I mean? So I guess they're just going where the money is. That's the reality of it. She'll find. She's, you know, she'll always have love in Philly. She'll. Yeah. Somebody will, if she has to come here and play records on that turntable there in front of you, we could do that. You know what yep. I mean? But yeah, man, it's like it was a very fascist thing, I think, back in the day. You just had the brothers in New York. And if you want to get in, you couldn't. And if you try to get in, you get beat down. You right. know what I mean? And. You had to earn your stripes. You had to be great. You had to earn your stripes, and it was a very, you know, often brutal thing. Again, the stories about the LQ are, you know, legendary. But that's where you had to get down. That was a, and that's why that, that's why it's the golden age for me. I think, because Marley nailed down his production. He was an incredible producer, and the artists that were coming up in that time were performing to the toughest critics mm -hmm. New York public knuckleheads the thugs the and just the true music lovers you know what I mean you get you would get booed off the stage so you know back to your question you know the, is the journalism it's like everybody has a a, a a say now and it's like big deal you know what I mean yeah it's like Nelson George for, for me was always and I've been reading him since you know, I really got into reading about music, which is probably like 86, 87, 88, for whatever column he had, and then Dream Hampton, and you know, the vibe, revolution of vibe uh, in the 90s, um, and Elliot Wilson in the early days of the source, so again, a very, uh, even, yeah, because uh, Word Up and, uh, Word, Word Up Magazine was the hip-hop version of Right On, which, you know, covers soul and R&B for kids, but it was, uh, it was a pulp, it was a pulp publications, they were mostly, you know, uh, all the articles there were filler to, you know, to fill out the posters that they posted, trying to create these heartthrobs and everything, but, again, word up, if you can find it, it's, they're incredibly hard to find now, and they're incredible, um, just documents about the culture at the time, 87, 88. Um, those photos are amazing. Um, but you referenced it in the Juicy. Yeah. Well, yeah, wall, that's, yeah, that was the big reference in Juicy. And um, still, I have, you know, I have Darlene and Ice-T Ice and Biz Markey and Cool V. It's a double-sided poster that I always had in my room. That's um, the only reason why I bought that Ice-T album. Mm -hmm. Because of Darlene Ortiz. Well, yeah. That's the only reason. That was why. a big marketing tool. Yeah. Yep, and I bought it. Yeah, we found the poster yesterday in the dig. Me and uh, Max from Brewery Town Beach. Shout out. Um, Damn it. Not a plug. 
Shout out to Ruby Town Beach, though. But yeah, we found that poster. Amazing. Mm. She was the uh, pinup girl for Hollywood Records. So she worked for Disney. She was a Disney, uh, Hollywood Basic. Was Disney's hip hop label briefly in the early 90s. Because they also signed, they were the label that had uh, Peanut Butter Wolf and Charisma signed to them. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zimbabwe legit, a bunch of you know, and but yeah, organized confusion was one of the first signees. A word, but um, yeah, so oh. yeah, fair much for people. That, Prince Paul, yep, no, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, again, back to your question though. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just not even just the journalism, it's like everybody has a say, you can just stream it, everybody has access, you know, you get all the rap you want. Get every rap, you know, most of the rap records. I'm a nerd, so I there's you know a ton of records that I can't find. Mm. This is why I still dig for records. But um, you know, everybody has access, and it's just you know big deal. I used, it used to, to be the most exciting thing in the world, man. Twelve years ago, this season, so the Fat Boys were kind of the first rap group to get a national endorsement, and they had a Swatch Watch commercial. They had two Swatch Watch commercials. Um, you know, Swatch was a huge company in the 80s that made these plastic colorful watches and you can buy like three and four at a time you rock them on your wrist. Um, and the Fat Boys uh, producer was a, happened to be Swiss and he got this a huge deal for them and they had two Swatch commercials and... You know, you didn't couldn't DVR anything, and the the VCR was only for certain shows. So, you saw that commercial. That commercial came on, Mike. Nineteen eighty four podcast. <laughs> um, waterice.com. Let me tell you, it was the most exciting. I jumped out of the sea. I remember it was like amazing thing. Did you see that? Oh my god, that was crazy! And like you know, it was like Buffy and. The human be uh human beatbox Buffy and, and Cool Rock and and the light skin one <laughs> terrible. Um it's running around someone swatches. It was like the most cause we just didn't have that exposure, man. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You had it you had the record, you had Word Up magazine, and that was about it. So to see them on TV. Oh, anything hip hop related, you were just recording and if you knew what's coming on, which you didn't <laughs> And this was like up until that tipping point, I think, 97. Um, so, and now it's just, you know, another thing to me. It's everywhere. So we're exposed. Everybody's talking about it. It's talking to, about it to death. And we have these arguments. And I'm like, why are you, what are you arguing about it? It's not, as far as I'm concerned, it's best days are behind us. And, you know, you're disposing of the best parts of it, I think. I understand why you like what you like. Mm-hmm. And you know it makes makes perfect sense, but you gotta understand that you are there's a whole history there that you're kind of disposing of. I don't think black history or black culture should ever be disposable, and that's just an ongoing trend. Right. You know we part ways with jazz, jazz people got bored with jazz. Um, for the most part, that was our music, and then you know Dave Brubeck stepped in. I'm like, oh. And he got a lot of criticism. He was a cultural vulture of his day. Did one of the biggest selling jazz records of the 50s. And this wasn't it. But, you know, we kind of lost our stay there. Was he the one who had the album cover with the woman covering, like, uh, 
like what was she coming with? Cream? cream? No, that was Herb Alpert. Herb Alpert, okay, get yeah, cool. All right, so yeah. Herb Alpert, um, yeah, uh, again, found the A and M records, and he was doing uh, Latin jazz, uh, Latin like Mexican jazz. He did the dating game theme and all that stuff. But yeah, Brubeck was you know like a modern. It was a more of a modern art cover and huge record, Take Five, mm-hmm. and you know we was just kind of like getting out of it. We had gone to rock and roll and uh, then to Motown. It wasn't any rock and roll. It turned to R and B. And just another marketing tool. It was like, like hip hop is just a name. It doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like rock and roll is just marketing R&B to white audiences. You know what I mean? You did a R&B show in Cleveland and a bunch of black folks come up and they panicked. So, okay, it's going to be called rock and roll instead for the white audiences. And then black audiences didn't, didn't show up. Everything was just marketing and the whole racial aspect to it. It's a complicated history, but keeps popping up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... I mean, we just keep moving on. I don't know how much, you know, you can fight for it, but, you know, what's the use? I mean, beautiful thing about recording music is record it. So you can always review it at your own discretion and with your own time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you don't like trap, you can turn it off and go back into your own stream. You know what I mean? Have something like three weeks worth of hip-hop or something in my iTunes that I can go to. I have, you know, 180 CDs under my bed right now <laughs> that I can go to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, you can critique it, and it's worth definitely worth fighting for. But I just see the same trends going on. And I grew up in the disco. I was a disco. My birth record was um, uh, George McRae, I think, and, you know, Rock Your Baby. It was like considered the first disco record. It's number one record when I was born. And then 74 and child of the disco era. So when I'm, you know, six years old and, uh, you know, I'm listening to Cool Letting Gang mm-hmm. and Earth, Wind & Fire. And, you know, I know what those sounds like. Let's Groove Tonight and just really these big, full, sleek productions, full, rich productions. And then I'm in college, you know, 12 years after that and I'm listening to hey wait a minute they had records in the early 70s mm-hmm. and they were like incredible Afrocentric grooves and just really heavy funk and the production was you know it was uh, low budget mm-hmm. they were just amazing so why you know amazing production so why nobody ever played these records so is that all that inspire the inspire aspirational aspect mm-hmm. to black culture like we're climbing out of this constantly climbing out of this tunnel we're constantly being refined as artists as people so you know when uh so you grew up in the shiny suit era definitely you do. had to do some hardcore research to find out a lot about the artists that you know that came out before that you know what i mean indeed so it just kind of like things always skew hedonistic Mm-hmm. and aspirational. So, you know, we kind of want better up to a point. Then a weird thing happened. Right. And after, you know, maybe 15, 12, 15 years ago where the more hood, you know, that street cred kind of took over. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, now the aspirational aspect of things is kind of like bougie. You want to be more thugged up. You want to be more hardcore. Right. It's a really, really weird thing, man, that just kind of just happened. And um, I've never seen it before, you know what I mean? People wanted to, always want to seem down, but I refined version of down, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like I'm at the club, but I'm drinking champagne. I'm not drinking 40. Cristal popping the Versace out here. I'm not drinking a forty like you know those Dapper Dan cats. Where I'm really rocking a genuine Gucci thing, not right. a Gucci bag cut into a suit. You know what right, I mean? right. Um, another you know just interesting thing that's just kind of happening there. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not you know anything. Nothing new under the sun. It just happened to everything else. You know what I mean? Another big aspect of it is the Sammy Davis Jr. Um, aspect. It's something that my dad put me up on. Okay. So back in the 60s, 50s, uh, say from the yeah 40s and 50s up to the 60s, Sammy Davis Jr. is the most electrifying by far performer. You sing, dance, mm-hmm. everything, act. Most incredible performer, most electric person in American culture. Start saying with the Rat Pack. You know, with, um, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and, you know. Joey Bishop. Joey and Bishop. And what's the fourth guy, the British cat, married oh, into the Kennedys. Exactly. Oh, God. And I know his name, but. Did the Google? Yeah, I got Google now. What happens, man? But anyway, you know, he starts hanging out with those cats. He's part of the black, uh, the the what is it called? The Rat Pack. Mm-hmm. And um, Black America's like, what are you doing? I'm not gonna look it up, but his, yeah. I got a name is it's Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford, very good. Then you need Google to stop. Excellent. Don't know, but ladies and gentlemen, let's do it. Send your kids <laughs> out the main line for that education. Yes. Get that, pull that Peter Lawford out. There. That's right. Didn't even need Google. So, um, Sammy Davis Jr. starts hanging out with those cats in Vegas. And starts performing for their audiences. And, you know, and they're watching. You know what I mean? These audiences are watching. These performers are watching every move that he's doing. It's like, what are you doing, man? You're giving away our secrets. So got, Sammy gave a lot, got a lot of flack back in the day for that. It's like you're giving it away to them, man. You got this. This is all we have. Mm-hmm. And he's just kind of like selling it, you know, to them, you know. If they pick up on it, if they learn your tricks and how you're dancing, it's a wrap for us. They don't need us anymore. Mm. Huge thing. So we've kind of been carrying that whole, like, been carrying Sammy Davis Jr. on our backs ever since that, you know what I mean? Just kind of keep it, keep it in your pocket, man. But at the same time, that money, man. He was getting paid at zeros, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you got to sell it. You want you going to make this money point with selling it. Sorry. So you can still call it selling out or whatever. And it was a whole huge no sellout movement, which was more political. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm going to stay true to the game. And I'm not going to be corporate. And I'm not going to alter the way I dress or talk, you know, for America. 
But um, then it was selling out in the hip hop sense as far as, you know, I'm not going to go pop. But at the same time, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a very sketchy thing, man. So you go back to the, and my favorite era of music, of course, is not the 80s or the 90s hip hop, but it was the cusp between the two. Okay. 89, 90, 91. Good era. Incredible era. Yes, indeed. The basic cable era for me is what I call it because, again, going back to Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble, mm-hmm. um, a Philly rap record, it was great music. It was a solid record. It wasn't the best, you know, best. It was Will at, at, at it was a better Will. Mm-hmm. Jazzy wasn't doing a heck of a lot on the record, as we knew him. But um, they put that record out. Uh, MTV showed it, and it was a minor hit. You know what I mean? And might see something else in it. You know what I mean? They they weren't playing rap records. They were playing very. They were playing them, but very sporadically. So there was no Yo MTV raps. Um, young intern by the name of Ted Demi, nephew of Philly director Jonathan Demi director Philadelphia uh, both uh, have passed since um, but yeah Ted Demi young intern at MTV he was a pest mm-hmm. to his you know whoever is running his program whoever he answered to as an intern he's a pest just drops constantly you know talking to them and you know, I think this would be a great idea if you did a block of rap rap videos mm-hmm. just constantly just do it do it do it he's constantly pushing it it's a total pest Passing notes under the uh, the urinals and stuff, you know what I mean? In the bathroom, constantly. It's like, all right, all right, you might have something there. You know, that Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince video did all right. Put on your own TV raps is almost instantly the biggest thing. An hour, two hours every Saturday, an hour in the morning and a repeat at night. Hosted by Fab Five Freddy. Um, who in itself was the first one to kind of herald, he was that hip-hop herald that, you know, went to the South Bronx and went to downtown, went to Soho, and, and went overseas with Celluloid Records and told the world that, you know, this is a vibrant thing. You guys need to, this vibrant thing going on uptown New York. You need to know about it. So here he is again uh, in a broadcasting sense on the air and the radio waves, on the TV waves, uh, and through going through your cable box, through the cable to your TV, and just directly telling you about all these amazing artists that are coming out. And you know, there were rap, there was rap on BET, not everybody had BET. You know, the infrastructure was just still building. We didn't get cable in general to fill it to late 80s, you know what I mean? So, you had that one. My grandma had Prism, so she was the first one to get BET and MTV in the family. I would go up to that back room where I would listen to Lady B a few years before on Saturday on Sunday afternoons after church. Mm-hmm. And luckily, if I was lucky to stay there over the weekend, I would just plop down on the... We had a Papazan chair. There was a stool. I sat on that stool, and I sat in front of that TV. And you would turn the TV on, it would just be a flood. You'd be at that hour, get that hour every Saturday... And then eventually, over the next couple of years, you would get, you know, two hours of Rap City. Then you'd get Showtime at the Apollo's rap there. Doing more raps on Soul Train. We talked about that earlier. Um, same. Weird rap performances. Same, same reception, but, you know, new artists nonetheless. 
Then you had the box, which is like music television you control. Channel sixty five, man. Which came out of Florida, I believe. It was twenty four seven, and it it was a democratic thing, just like the Power ninety nine countdown. You would call in, and nobody really called in. It turns out that the record companies were calling in and ordering a lot of it just to keep it on because they needed to show something. They couldn't show the menu twenty four hours a day in between videos, mm-hmm. so record companies well we're trying to push this record so we're going to and it goes back to the Fayola thing kind of they kind of like rigged the game so you would see the radios all the time and just a flood of just this culture and this the diversity of the artists was amazing so you had local kids just as, as diverse as Schooly and Will you know Will Fresh School thing, Miz was but, out there clean cut overbook kid and mm-hmm. you know goofy teenager doing this that and the third I don't know the reality of that <laughs> I might just spend him on records right that's another question of Scheme Richard so you gotta have on the show soon um I'm trying to catch Scheme yeah <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> and not what a mile not two miles away uh Schooly D doing this thug thing mm-hmm. you know that was it was two diverse things they live in the same city they were not making the same music you're not getting that today Right. Unfortunately, you could get a conscious rapper, you know, a live rapper. There are, they, they do exist. There is a circle. There are these circles, but they're not getting that exposure anymore. A quick, quick, uh, yeah. quick diversion here. Talk about Philly rappers. Sure. Big confession. So, all over the net, mm-hmm. all over Twitter, mm-hmm. Black Thoughts, recent freestyle on Phone Flex made waves, right? Yeah. People are like, oh man, Black Thought is that dude. Yes. Confession, I have yet to see the freestyle. You're probably saying why I didn't see the freestyle yet. I'll tell you. Because mm-hmm. I got tired of everybody just talking about it. Because it was everywhere. Like on my yeah. Facebook timeline, it was everywhere. On Twitter, it was everywhere. Instagram, I'm like, listen, mm-hmm. I need for this whole hype to die down. Mm-hmm. And I'll play it on a random Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, okay. That's what they were talking about. But just the whole flux of just everybody, oh my God, look at this freestyle. I'm like, I know Black Thought is nice, yo. Just like everybody was so damn surprised by what, what he did. I'm like, this is what he usually does. That's, like I, I posted, he uses, this is him on a Tuesday morning before his day job. Yes. 9 to 5 at Jimmy Fallon. That was it. And yeah. again, this isn't hate or like coming off like I'm, you know, dissing him. But right. it's just that reason why I didn't listen to freestyle or got to it because... Everybody's so damn shocked. Oh my God. I'm like, yo, this is what he does. This is what he does. What you expect? So when it's I like, watch it, you know, I'll see what I expected. I don't know. And everybody was talking about it. And that kind of irked me. I'm glad he's got the exposure. Yeah, me too. But the people that were exposing it were talking about Cardi B's dress two weeks before that. That was the topic. Cardi, Cardi B wore this to this thing. Cardi B, you know, showed up. Mm-hmm. Cardi B in a photo of Beyonce, like this, you know, some kind of. Beyonce knows knows who Cardi B is, isn't that great? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, my favorite, uh, the comedian Tiffany Haddish was like, I introduced uh, Barbara Streisand to Cardi B, and that was like all over Instagram and Twitter. I'm like, listen, that's wow. that's cool. Yeah, Barbara Streisand knows about her. Cardi B. I'm like, what's, what is this? You know. Yeah. But again, back to this point about you know the Black Thought freestyle. It was a very, it was a, it was actually about music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was an exciting thing, and I watched it probably eight times in its entirety. It's 10 minutes. 
It's a solid 10 minutes. And he talks about it a lot. And he's very eloquent. Of course. Because, like, this is, this is black thought. Like, this yeah. is... This is... Tar- this is... This is Tariq here. This is Tariq yes. G's. We know it. We know it. We, but the world doesn't know it. But, you know, I don't want to be that guy like, well, I've always been on top of it. But I'm glad you know. Yeah. But we've been saying it. This is visual proof. Provided by Funkmaster Flex, no less. Right. Who nobody seems to like. I used to be a fan of him, man. But I thought he would start getting caught up in, like, gimmicks and stuff. I guess he does that for... Keep I mean, people listening. I, you know, it's an amazing thing to be like it's still on the radio from the time of the tunnel. I mean, when yeah, hip hop will chew up and spit you out really good, uh, pretty quick. He's still, still that, still an authority. You know what I mean? Stone Hot ninety seven. Still bringing us things like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and that that cusp. And if you listen to, for me. Um, so I was talking about Basic Cable and that flood of just artists and you just said the diversity of artists and you had all the native tongues. Mm-hmm. And people think it was just, you know, the B-boys and the native tongues and that was it. But it was just a full spectrum of just artist music was coming from everywhere. And a lot of it was bad music. <laughs> it was a lot of bad music came back in the, and during that cusp. During my favorite era, a lot of bugged out music was coming out. A lot of knockoff music, a lot of fake De La Soul came out, but overall, it was just a very exciting thing. You didn't know what was coming next. Really didn't. And, it, you know, a song that It Takes Two would you know get played to death. OPP would get played to death. Um, but, and that's where an underground rap kind of, you could see it evolving. That was also exciting. So you had popular rap, more mainstream rap in itself, you know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. hip-hop in general was the outcast thing. You had an outcast part of the outcast. You know, it was getting subdivided into, you know, there was a popular, there was popular rap, there was underground rap, whereas mm-hmm. all rap was underground at one point. So, um, just that cusp and that the best, the best, for me, the best, Hip hop at its best has always been not one artist, not one album, not the clothes or the fashion or behind it. It's always become down a red alert, a red alert mm-hmm. show on um, 98.7 Kiss FM, especially during that, the cusp, which is 90, again, 89, 90, 91. You get, and people have, you know, there's tapes available online and stuff. And, for me, Red Alert was the best because he he didn't he played everything. He played the best records. He wasn't regionally um, influenced. Mm-hmm. He was playing NWA. He was playing bass, Miami bass, late in his sets. He just didn't play bad records. It didn't matter where it came from. He was playing the best records. And and it was like I don't know. It's just like when he was on the air, my brother would tape. Uh, brother with my father uh, and my brother my dad took a job at Harlem Hospital and he was commuting between New York and Philly it was an amazing time for him and my brother was living with him he had graduated from Fairleigh Dickinson and he was like you know we go up to visit me and my mom would go up to visit um, on weekends 
uh, and the family be together, and I would just tap into Red Alert on 98.7 on the weekends. It'd be like, I think it was a Friday show and a Saturday show. Saturday might have been a replay of Friday. But it was just electric, and it wasn't, it wasn't just about the records. He didn't play records for 90 minutes. It was about the drops. The drops were all funny. The on-air report was funny. He had all these go-to jokes about the, the poo-poo juice and the... Uh, you know, Riddler ain't at your radio. Your radio ain't really on. And the promos, you know, this is, yo, this is whoever. This is Red Man. And when I'm not doing this, that, and the third, I'm listening to Riddler on 98.7. Then there was Robler, his son, who had, you know, his little kid had his crazy, high, speechy voice who did all these drops that were just insane, man. Robler. I think his name was Rob Alert. Is yeah, his Red Alert's son, whatever his son's name was. It was just like this amazing electric thing. It just felt like I felt the city. It really added to the city. Mm-hmm. You felt like the city was alive when he was on. And I know he came after Mr. Magic and you know Pete Rock and Molly Maul had a show uh, up the dial, and um, Chuck Chillout, another great uh, uh, New York radio DJ. And it was just like all the records were coming out. And then, um, you know, I got to college and things were getting really, you could really see things getting subdivided. And, you know, West Coast had its own sound. I went to school in the Midwest, so I was on that side of the Mississippi. So everything was gangster, skewed gangster, especially in the 90s. Uh, I was one of few, like, I think it was like me and another black kid from... (laughs) Philly, mm-hmm. and the bulk of you know the black student uh, there were from some were from Iowa and a lot of them from Chicago. So you know it was on campus. It was all about you know Bone Thugs. When Bone Thugs hit, it was it was a rap for everything, and I hated the record. And you know I retreated to my room and played Red Man and Wu Tang and um you know luckily. The RZA was on his five-year plan run, which was like amazing time to be there. And you know, just going, just going to school in the Midwest was weird because I was not in the element here on the East Coast. Okay. I was not in the element on the West Coast. So, and uh, you know, cable was a luxury then. You know what I mean? So, it was strictly those Tuesday trips to Co-op Records um, in town. Never went to music land. I still kept it underground when I could. <laughs> and I didn't go to the mainstream unless I really needed to. Right. So co-op was a, it was a franchise in Ames, Iowa. I went to Iowa State University. And I was in and out of school between 92 and 98. I was here. They were back here a couple times. Tuesdays. Tuesdays ruled it. I'd go out and I'd see what, what, it, what was out. And, you know... At the time, even when I was in high school, middle school, there was a whole economics to hip-hop. Mm-hmm. So CDs were just reintroduced. I got my first CD player in, I think, 89 at Christmas. And I got the Biz, uh, Diabolical Biz Monkey. Or the Biz Never Sleeps. Um, was the first rap CD I got. So, you know, CDs were what? Twelve ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Cassettes were eight ninety nine to nine ninety nine, and artists. The few artists that I did love, they got CD love. 
then. If I wasn't sure about an artist, I get the cassette. If I still wanted the music, I get the cassette. Like I like the single. I don't know about the whole uh, album. Mm. I bought the cassette. It was a you know three four dollar disc. It was a big difference. Was you back then? And I lost a lot of those gambles. Like you know, I had reasonable doubt on cassette. And I said, "Damn, I wish I had the CD." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's actually a better album than I thought it would be. And most, but you know, I had my Walkman. It was just more about portability. The CDs never really carried well for me. You know what I mean? Right. And if you lost the CD, that was a big loss. So you know, it was those economics, and you know, it was Tuesdays where my money went. That's all my where my money went. I still have most of that collection. I lost a lot of CDs in college, but Tuesdays. It was about Tuesdays. It was about my subscription to the source. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to Vibe when Vibe dropped, which was you know more black music in general. Hip hop was a big part of it, but you know it was a lot of R and B. He had TLC covers. He had Shante Moore. All that stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, but you know, it helped me through. And I never really got back to those British magazines because you know, no, this is for us. It's an American thing. It was easier to get. Right. Boy, and you know, even when Ego Trip and On the Run and all these you know rap pages came along in the nineties, you know, later on in the nineties, those were luxuries. You know, I remember making trips to like Des Moines, like getting hyped to go to Des Moines, Iowa. Just thirty miles south of of Ames, mm-hmm. get hyped to go to the one because the big mall was there. They had three big malls, and it was the Best Buy there, and they had a uh, Borders and Barnes and Noble, I think, if we were lucky. If you living, <laughs> yeah. So you, if you got, you know, if you happen to find that issue of Eagle Trip, it was like it was golden, it was pure gold. You find On the Go magazine, which is a Philly based graffiti. I shot to Ari and Espo, and. um Golden again, and I have very few of those, but I have every source that came out in the '90s and every vibe. So, it my whole experience there was just filtered. It was strictly anticipating those records, and this was in the was and and for me, everything is about balance. You know, what I mean, and the best thing about that cusp '89-1991 was there was an infrastructure there. Mm-hmm but it was still kind of shady. Nobody was really kind of hip to the hip-hop game. Nobody was really calling shots. Anything could have happened. You know, anything could have been upsurp any from month to month. Right. This producer could make, you know, the best thing, and he can make garbage the next album. It was, like, so unstable, unpredictable. It was an amazing time to be a live dude. <laughs> and... um. Then, you know, to the late 90s, that kind of, things kind of solidified. And, you know, that drag, drag got stronger. That that sense of drag, people people putting the drag on, got stronger. And so, even, you know, a lot of good, great music just went untouched, unplayed. It wasn't even an underground thing. It was like, you know, kind of like, you know, just regular, accessible music hip-hop as we knew it, but it wasn't that aspirational. It wasn't the shiny suit stuff. And people thought it was, like, hating, but it was, like, you know, it was criticism. You know what I mean? There's like, some legit criticism to what Puffy was doing. You know what I mean? And as much as you love M.A. Dollar Sign E, it's just, like, his delivery, delivery, delivery was, um, 
I don't know. I was always taken aback by it. It was always cringing. I would always cringe at his delivery. Okay. To be perfectly honest. Um. So yeah, it was, and my whole hip hop experience in the '90s was was just filtered. It was strictly music, and strictly those the source and strictly the vibe, which were, and which were those elements were kind of the machine was kind of forming. Mm-hmm. So the record industry was had kind of captured the hip hop zeitgeist. You know what I mean? And things were just solidifying it was hard to catch at some point you know what I mean it was very artists were very resistant to you know to the label to the big labels you know it was always about the local labels and the other great thing about that time is you had your local uh, moguls so you know Luke was Florida you know what I mean every city had like that that figure behind it so Luke was Florida you had Jermaine Dupri in Atlanta you had um you know rap a lot in Houston rap huge J Prince um, J Prince yeah um you know yeah ruthless and profile in L A so makes a lot had Swass in the Bay Area it was you know owned by E Forty and you know Hammer even Hammer's first album was in that stream of thing wasn't the best thing to me it was kind of weird you know what I mean he was rocking the Espadrille sandals with no socks and the, the funny baggy pants, but you know it was it was still kind of exciting. You know it wasn't boring. Hammer was never boring. <laughs> Hammer got you know. Hammer was never you, you know as as much man as much as people <laughs> as much as, as horrible as Vanilla Ice was, he was oh, never. God. You know, there was always some entertainment value to what he was doing just because it was so whack. You know what I mean? I can't front because when I was a kid, like, mind you, talk like 89, 90. Mm-hmm. When Hammer came out, it was big. So, but naturally, if you hear him on the radio, yeah, and you hear him on a damn Adam's Family soundtrack, yeah, and then he does Too Legit to Quit with James Brown in the video, you're like, oh shit, this yeah. is big time. It was about the spectacle and. Yeah, just the music wasn't. But funny thing about about Hammer mm-hmm. is that it was only about the singles with Hammer, right? We like my look. My parents didn't own a single. They didn't own no Hammer <laughs> albums. That was not what they were doing. Right. But if I heard on the radio, I only knew Hammer by what I heard singles wise. Right. That was it. And same thing with Oak Town Three Five Seven. Like, oh my goodness, because of a single, that was right. it. But album wise, I know nothing about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, Oak Town Three Five Seven. Something about that song. He had a sound. They had a sound. Busted Records had a sound early mm-hmm. on. Then it got really smooth and it was mainstream. And he did Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial and Hammer Man and the whole phenomenon. And then, you know, it seemed unstoppable. And then it stopped. <laughs> the money, the, money dried up. One of the first, like, I want to say one of the first rappers. Well, I guess he was one of the first rappers to, like, be, like, religious we got yeah, the he did break. a gospel record off a print sample. Just I mean, to make it today. Yeah, yeah man. Right. Yeah. Dancing with like sockless loafers and shit. Just and forget what you know about Afrocentrism. He's the blackest rapper. He did a gospel record off a print sample. He did. He was the black man. He was the black mainstream. Off of When Doves Cry. Yeah. Oh my God. In that in that sense. 
not Afrocentric black, but mainstream. B uh Ebony Jet. Black, yes. Black. Uh, okay, I got what you're saying. Yes, absolute. Yes. He was yeah. Gospel. Yeah. Yeah. The gospel tradition. Yeah. Yeah, man. It was crazy. Even um I feel like a lot of his songs had like uh gospel like roots in it. like that song gonna turn this mother out dun, that the chords progression that yeah. was that was all yeah, like actually, I mean this I learned about the production behind it. It's very um very interesting story about, you know, how those records were produced. But yeah. Some industry veterans were a hind hammer and that first record it was like again, it was like it was just part of that stream, you know, it was just a facade a facet of what was going on there. Mm-hmm. It was coming from all over the country and oh my god, low profile. Um just fell in love with this West Coast rap from the beginning, even before NWA, low profile and King T. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't all about, you know, gangster rap. It was, you know, he had the alcoholics and the far side and Love the far side. Made incredible, incredible, incredible records. One of my favorite catalogs is the Alcoholics catalog. There's so many solid singles there. Especially the singles. Hieroglyphics. So much great music that wasn't Oakland Blackouts. Gangster rap that, you know, you bring it up and, you know, it's people kinda of fuzzy about it, you know what I mean? But they know ninety three two infinity and they know um you know, passing me by. That can be an entirely different podcast too, because like the two sides of LA in the nineties. Oh yeah, definitely. Still. Yeah, even since it's very, still a very diverse sound, but you know, people like that people wanna appear to be down. They were fascinated by that whole gangster side of things. Yeah. Not about music. Not necessarily about music. And then G Funk hit and a lot of G Funk records came out. So people were just trying to make uh Warren G records after that. That's how that sound kind of petered out. You know what I mean? I'm a big Quick fan. Quick is an amazing. Just forget rap records. He's just an amazing musical producer.